You are listening to 112263, an event podcast. Bonus episode number one, Quantum Leap, Lee Harvey Oswald. The world changed in seconds. Now, a special two-hour TV event can change your view of history. The season premiere of Quantum Leap. My name is Lee Harvey Oswald. Sam leaps into the most notorious assassin of the century. What really happened? Everyone has a theory. This one has a surprise ending. Quantum Leap, the Oswald Conspiracy, premieres NBC Tuesday. Welcome, everyone. This is the 112263 podcast where content is king and king is content. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. This is Skipper Martin. And you are listening to our first of many bonus episodes. This one is dedicated to the Quantum Leap episode, Lee Harvey Oswald. And because of that, we have a special guest today. You are listening to the Quantum Leap podcast. This is bonus episode number 47. I have no idea. (laughs) 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 Heather's not here today because this would spoil her. Oh, well put. Well put. This is our first ever crossover episode, and I'm super excited to be here. So it's me, Christopher, and Skipper. And... I think there's someone else. Hey, everybody. This is Juan with Thinking Outside the Long Box, and this is bonus episode number 700, apparently. <laughs> All right. I don't, I don't introduce my show, so. Juan, what are you doing here? <laughs> We're having a crossover episode, apparently, for dedicated to Quantum Leap's Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He's not lying. Actually, I'm only here to invite Chris to our podcast, Thinking Outside the Long Box. Well, Juan, I'd love to come on Thinking Outside the Long Box. I just listened to your best of show for 2015, and I must tell you, you Star Wars Stepford fanboys need to be schooled. So I can't wait to go on your show. That's not going to (laughs) happen. And just, I just want to let you know, you know, all the good stuff you could be watching. So Okay, so you're invited, but you're not going to school anybody. Well, I will be there with bells on and many, many opinions about all the great geek stuff. Yeah, you're lucky this is a PG show. <laughs> well, listen, we're going to have no holds barred when we're on Thinking Outside the Long Walks. I know how it works over there. Trust me. All these wonderful shows are available at barrenspace.com and on iTunes. Welcome to this bonus episode of the 112263 podcast. We are going to cover something rather unusual today. And the real point here for all of you who have stuck with us this long Why do we care about the bonus episodes? Why should you even bother? What's the point? Well, the idea is that you are kind of in the same boat that we are. We found out about a Stephen King book, and then they turned it into a miniseries. But wait, there are a lot more stories to tell that cover the same ground. And because we are covering roughly a time traveler going back to stop the Kennedy assassination story, it turns out there's a lot more of those. And so that's where these bonus episodes come in. But don't think that these are just throwaways that you can ignore. I can't stress to you enough that we are covering a lot of material here 
so you don't have to. <laughs> we have a lot of novels and TV shows and episodes, and there's stuff that we're going to talk about. Many of them are going to uh, get their own episode just like this. Today we are covering a Quantum Leap episode, the season five opener, Lee Harvey Oswald, where the main character, Sam Beckett, leaps into Lee Harvey Oswald. That's what we're covering today. Uh, I want to lay down the ground rules. Because this is obviously going to be very different from what you've heard before. We are going to start with a non-spoiler section. So you, do, you don't have to turn this off yet when we will tell you where you can turn off. We want to give you the opportunity to go experience these other properties for yourself. We're going to be talking about books and other episodes and other TV shows and TV movies. And so we want to give you the idea of what the heck we're talking about. And if it sounds interesting to you, go off and see it. And then come back and listen to the rest of it so you're not spoiled. Chris, how do you feel about that? I think that's terrific. And there are some very broad strokes that I'd like to start with. Please. Okay. Well, number one, this was the season five opener of Quantum Leap. And for Quantum Leap fans, this episode was where everything changed. There were so many game changers in this episode that on top of the entire Lee Harvey Oswald plot... There were many things within the Quantum Leap universe that were either quantified, that were never quantified before, or completely changed. The entire premise, in many ways, was, was flipped on its head in one throwaway line in this episode. And I want to talk about that in greater detail with uh, Albie, because Albie is the king of Quantum Leap around here. I mean, he runs the Quantum Leap podcast. That's why we're all talking about this together, aside from the cross-promotion, the fact that we're all one big happy production company. I really want to get Albie's take on some of the nitty-gritty of the Quantum Leap universe as it was portrayed in this episode. Now, beyond that, I really liked a lot of the Lee Harvey Oswald stuff, wasn't crazy about some of the aspects of the leaping stuff, but the overall message of the episode, and as I stated before on the 112263 podcast, in as far as getting out the message that Oswald acted alone, I think that Don Belisario maybe did the best job of getting that across in a succinct way in having an episode where the plot drives the character. Sam is very much a pawn in this entire episode, but the message of the episode comes across loud and clear in a way that I think at the time that this episode aired, we really needed to hear that simple message. We really needed to cut through all the noise that was going around. But in terms of the broader episode, they brought up a lot of questions about the Kennedy assassination and I think that they did it in a very compelling way, especially within the context of the time, because when this episode aired, we had the JFK craze. It was the Oliver Stone film had come out very recently, and there were a lot of competing theories about what really happened that day. And Don Belisario took a stance on this one, and I can't wait to talk about that stance. Now, when we get into the spoilers, we're going to obviously get into, some, uh, into the nitty-gritty, but for now, speaking only as the broad strokes, if anyone has... Uh, read the book or only seen the miniseries or both, <clears throat> what we're talking about here is the same loose concept a time traveler is trying to stop the Kennedy assassination, or in this particular case, specifically, as it's laid out, the plot of this episode is Sam Beckett may be there simply to uncover the truth. Is it a conspiracy? Is it not? And how does he play a part of it? And can he stop the assassination? So that's roughly, you know, the plot of it. And for this non-spoiler section, I want to just say, if you've never heard of Quantum Leap, if you're brand new to it, 
The basic premise of the show is a time traveler is stuck within his own lifetime, bouncing from person to person, trying to set right what once went wrong, say that five times fast, and um, he's trying to get home. So that's the basic premise of the show. And Sam Beckett, our lead character, has leaped for the first time in the show's history into a real person, and that's what changed the game. So this episode is kind of different from the rest of them. But speaking as a broad episode by itself, should you go see it? Should you seek this out? Absolutely. For me, my rating is two very high thumbs up. When it comes to this episode, it's one of my favorites that I've seen many, many times, and I do recommend it highly. If you like 112263, the movie or the book, I think you're the audience for it. I think you'll dig it. And if it just happens to be a gateway for you to go check out the, the series, it's one of my favorite series of all time. So that's my opinion loosely in this non-spoiler part. All right, Skip, let me tell you, our dynamic is safe because I kind of disagree with you here. I think <laughs> there, in many ways, this episode was a means to an end. And while I liked the end that it reached, the means to me are very sketchy. There's a lot about this episode that confuses me. There's a lot about this episode that I just plain don't like. But there's also, on top of that, a lot about this episode, like I said before, changes a lot of paradigms with Quantum Leap. So when I watch it, I can't help but watch it more as a fan and then see it as a story second. And then when I try to concentrate on that story, a lot of that story kind of falls down for me in varying respects. And we can get into more of that nitty gritty on the sort of the spoiler section of this, but just keeping it general now, I don't think this is the greatest episode of Quantum Leap. I think that it was a gimmicky season opener based on network pressure. And I think Belisario did the best he could under that pressure. But this is not how I would have approached telling this story, even though I like the message that the story conveys. Wow, it sounds like I'm listening to a really great podcast <laughs> on 112263. I'm only going to give my general uh, thoughts about this episode because I'm sure Heather and I will cover this episode a few years from now. But in, in general, I really like this episode, and I think this is one of the things, if not the thing, that got me interested in the history of the Kennedy assassination, but also with time travel involved. And over the years, I've found a couple more things that are time travel and Kennedy assassination crossovers, and uh, that's one of the things, my passion for this, that inspired this whole podcast. And watching the episode back today, I really, really enjoyed it, and the ending – always makes me cry. It's emotional to me. This makes you cry? MIA makes you cry. <laughs> <laughs> For different reasons. I just think the whole Kennedy tragedy, it's still real to me. And I wasn't even alive when it happened. But every time I go through that, it's, it's very emotionally devastating to me. And the fact that the ending is as it is, it's also tears of joy because of the way the episode ended. Wow, that's interesting because a lot of the discussions that we have on the 112263 podcast, anyway, a lot of the way I frame the discussions, I, Skipper's just an unwilling participant, True. hostage to my totally. ideas. Mm -hmm. But I always think that we have a perspective that might not be the best perspective, and just hear me out on that. We're viewing this through the gauze of history. To us, this is an event that did not affect us personally. We weren't alive during these events. And we feel, uh, I, I think, a certain disconnect to them. So for Albie, for you to say that something like this episode of Quantum Leap, because it deals with the assassination, 
which happened before we were born, for it to affect you personally and to make you cry on a level where I think that if you were 10 years old or 20 years old and you knew where you were when Kennedy was assassinated, that's one thing. But to look at it through the perspective of just being a historical event and still having it affect you that greatly, uh, to me, that's that that's really neat. I I don't know that I could ever muster that up unless it was done in such a way. And the closest I ever came was 112263, the Stephen King book. I look forward to seeing what the series does and how it affects me on that emotional level, that visceral emotional level. But the book for me succeeded on that front where this episode of Quantum Leap didn't. Well, I can get into things very easily when they're well-written or well-acted or hopefully both, like MIA makes me cry. But in all reality, Al Calavici is a character made up by Donald P. Bellazario. Now, this episode of Quantum Leap is still actors on a TV show, and that gets me emotionally involved. But I think that it actually happened in real life, and this is a real-life tragedy. It just pushes me over the edge that much more to where I get that emotional. Okay, Halby, fair enough. I guess I just have a black, black heart. (laughs) <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true but it's okay so Juan you're even further removed because of that you're younger than all of us put together I think so what 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 does this episode do for you so in true thinking outside the long box fashion I have not prepared for this at all and I don't really know what's going on but here we go <laughs> This is actually one of my favorite uh, episodes, personally. Um, I like it a lot for how we get to see Sam more Swiss cheese than normal and more kind of taking on personality than normal, which is very different from a normal episode. I love the ending. Of course, I'm not going to give it away, um, but I, I, I love the fact it ends in a way that we've already got history written, and it's just kind of a surprise where typically he'll change something as opposed to something already being, if that makes any sense. It does make sense, and uh, and we will be getting into that. Basically, this uh, this episode proved that uh, this is Sam Beckett's universe, and we're all living in it. Right. <laughs> uh, good point. You know, um, clearly we've, uh, in my opinion, I think we really have kind of fulfilled our uh, obligation for the non-spoiler. If you, at this point, feel the need, if you are interested in going to check this out for yourself, And then maybe come back, because we're now about to go into spoiler territory. But if you are going to look this episode up, you, of course, can buy it on DVD and all your favorite DVD places where you can buy DVDs. Or you can go on Hulu.com. They have the uh, episode available there. It is also available to rent on Amazon.com. You know what's lame is that it's not on Netflix. I know. Yeah, you would. Th- the show is actually on Netflix, but it's one of those episodes that isn't available, so it's a real bummer. But specifically, if you do want to seek this out, it is Season five's premiere episode. It's a two-parter, and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald Part 1 and 2. And I think, uh, without any objection, I think that wraps up the non-spoilery part. Uh, any objection, anyone? No, let's get into the nitty-gritty. I think if you don't have a black heart like Chris, you'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. Um, So stop the podcast now and come back after you're done watching it. And because now we're getting into the nitty gritty. Anyone who is now listening, 
you've seen it or you don't care about spoilers and we're just going to go and, and let everything fly. I think Chris has a bone to pick with this episode. I got plenty to say, but let's start with the negative so we can have a nice positive chaser. Let's get his black heart out of the way. Go, Chris. All right. Now that we're in the spoiler version of this, I want to start with the Quantum Leap centric stuff because I want to get your opinion as a fan. The paradigm shift that really made my head spin the first time I was watching this, it was a throwaway line. It was when Sam as Oswald had defected to Russia and he had just given his U2 testimony. I think it was either at the end of the first part or the beginning of the second part. But he came out and they were trying to figure out why he leaped out of Lee Harvey Oswald from that very first shot when he was holding up the newspaper. And Sam said something like, maybe I didn't get a chance to do what I was there to do. And then Al turns around and says, well, that does, you know, you know that success has no effect on leaping. And right there, it took me completely out of the episode. Up until that point, the entire show was predicated on the fact that Sam needed to successfully complete his mission or he might not leap or he wouldn't leap and then here we are in season five and just as a throwaway they take that entire premise on which the show is built and just say oh no that doesn't matter and did that strike you when you were watching it it is jarring it's it's a line that's thrown in there that you wonder what did i miss because up until this point leaping did require getting the job done yeah, it's it's pre- leaping is predicated on success. Um, just to jump in here for a second, I could swear that it had been um, established in an earlier episode where he failed. There was an episode I remember he fails, but he still leaps. I could swear I remember an episode, and they had to talk about it. How did you leap? But I failed, and they discovered that you know him. I could swear this had happened before, and that's why I, I remember that. As a callback, because I do no. remember a previous episode where he failed but still leaped. He doesn't have to succeed to leap. The one I can remember is he didn't necessarily fail, but it's the one where he's singing Dean Martin at the beginning, I think, where he jumps to a different person. Double identity. Yes. He jumps to a different person as to try and fix whatever he was still there to do. Right. Now, let me, let me take that back because... I think with that episode, that was maybe the third episode, right, Albie? That was Double Identity. Yeah. And the rules of leaping were not really fully established by them, but they had established that it's God, fate, time, or whatever, and that you need to put right what once went wrong, otherwise you might not leap. And I think that they maybe did that as a test idea to see, oh, maybe we can have him leap to two people in one episode. And then they quickly said, that's too confusing, that's too nuts, let's just throw it out. One one person, one episode. I saw that episode, Double Identity, as working out premise and story kinks to see where we could take this and what works and what doesn't. And I think they decided that doing two leaps in one episode doesn't work. So we're just going to focus our efforts on one leap, one success, and then he goes on to the next leap. So I never saw Double Identity as, as, as a gateway to saying that success doesn't matter. So I guess my question to you, in your just description that you just gave, you said success might be the key. When was it established, in what episode was it established that he had to be successful in order to do it? 
Here's the thing, and that's a double-edged sword, because you are always under the impression that he might not leap, probably wouldn't leap, unless he was successful. That's where the main narrative tension of the show arose right. from. And the fact that that was the case, then he always had to be successful. Otherwise, then where do they go from there from a story point of view? So I get what you're saying. It's not definitively established because you can't prove a negative. But at the same time, you knew watching that show that it pretty much was he's got to do it or he won't leap and he'll never get home. And that was the contract that you entered into on the premise of the show. How they fudged it a little bit and how they made it somewhat nebulous, you could never really test it because they were never going to have him fail because then you don't have show. I, I disagree. I think there is an episode where he failed, and I can't remember what it was, but I remember them having the conversation. How did I leap? I failed. I know in Trilogy later on, he his character you know literally fails. That definitely happens in Trilogy. That's when you know, the flaming beam falls on. Right. So um, he does fail, and I, I could swear he did fail before. I never took that, and this is only as a viewer who you know watched the whole series as just a viewer like anyone else. I never took that as any kind of major source of tension. Oh, my God, if he doesn't you know, put right, he won't leap. I thought that they did away with that, you know, relatively early because to me the suspense was was he ever going to get home? You know, him saving the day, he probably will. I think they I thought they got got rid of that tension a long time ago. If I'm misremembering, I'm misremembering, but before I move on, I just want to remind us that we are getting a little bit into the weeds uh, on Quantum Leap and our audience doesn't, you know, may not care about the mechanics of a, you know, 2030. Yeah, well, show. that's that's also why I wanted to keep Albie around just to have his perspective on this because I've been dying to ask a, a fellow leaper about this. Gotcha. I used to be a stickler for all the rules until I started talking to the producers and the writers of the show and they're like, rules, <laughs> schmools, uh, don't worry about any of that because we didn't know what we, the rules were. And and after I realized that, I was like, okay. But the show really felt that way because, you know, Ziggy started as a male computer, then became a female computer, and then they tried to tell you that, oh, it's Sam's body and it's just the aura of someone else. And then later on, it's like, no, 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 he he gets pregnant and... And so there, all these rules keep getting broken, and so it was pretty obvious that yeah. they were making it up as they went along. I think any rules that the series has, we gave it to the series. And I think that, again, one of the central tenets of the show was Sam needs to be successful to leap. Skip, I don't know what episode you're, you're referring to. If we can find it or a fan out there can tell us, but it's not coming off the top of my head, and I've seen them all The Leap Back times. Part 2. The Leap Ooh, Back Part 2. The Leap Back Part So they failed the mission... In order to save Tom. But that wasn't the mission. That's true. That's true. He totally mm. failed on that one. Very yeah, It was so wrapped up in emotion. See, I guess maybe why I'm taking this episode to task was because of the way it ended. And it seemed to me that if Sam is there as Oswald, naturally, what would you think? He's there to save Kennedy. And so, But where does that bring us? You know he can't save Kennedy. So all of a sudden you have to make it so that leaping isn't predicated on success. Well, we should cover, you know, obviously, we're now in a spoiler territory, you've seen it, but we should at least, you know, hit the basics, which are, you know, Sam, it turns out Sam is bouncing back and forth, back and forth. Uh, he's not even linearly bouncing, but he's going through different parts in Lee Harvey Oswald's life that are basically disproving, ultimately, that there was a conspiracy. It was all him. And in the end, and throughout the episode, there's a thread that Sam Beckett is petrified because Lee Harvey Oswald seems to be taking him over and he's losing control. 
control of himself and he becomes petrified that he will be responsible and he will actually pull the trigger that kills Kennedy. So that uh, ultimately leads to the big ending. It ultimately leads to where it always leads in stories like this. Sam on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Only he's not trying to stop Oswald. He is Oswald. And Oswald has taken him over to such an extent that Al can't stop him. He can't get through to him. And in order to do so, he tells him about where he was on that day. He says, Sam, your dad's alive and you're on the farm and he's teaching you to drive the tractor. And that's what you're doing today. You're not Lee Harvey. And Sam, he picks his head up and he says, Dad. Oh, I get chills. He's just saying that. And that's a great character moment because it harkens back to Sam. And then he leaps and he goes into um, one of the Secret Service guys. I wonder if it was Clint Hill. I'm not sure. I believe it was. And that's where we hear that the the history that Sam changed. That's why I said you learn now that it's Sam Beckett's universe and we're all living in it because he wasn't there to save Kennedy. He was there to save Jackie. And if you didn't realize it, then look. Um, your Swiss cheese brain doesn't remember, but Jackie was uh, killed that day too, and you changed that. And that brings up my favorite part of the episode, and I've said this before several places, but when I was watching this episode at home as a kid, I thought to myself, wow, Sam changed history, because I literally remember that Jackie survived. <laughs> okay. When I talked to Donald P. Belisario about this, I complimented on him on the ending and how important that ending was to the episode and he said it just came to him and he said that would be great because if history did change that's the way we would remember it yeah and again i saw it as a way for them to have their cake and eat it too because they needed to have sam do real world stuff in season six or season five otherwise the show might be in jeopardy and that to me it just it just smacked of studio notes yeah, but doesn't it, you know, doesn't it really prove that, you know, that Quantum Leap was clearly a better show when it didn't? Uh, now, I love this episode, you know, with the same, with a caveat that a lot of people have. He leaped into a real person, and now suddenly Sam Beckett is responsible for Jackie Kennedy living. Okay, let me stop rolling my eyes. I get the idea, and I can certainly see how uh, Albie would like that idea, and, and anyone else might like the idea. But... We're now getting into, you know, territory, and you said it, yeah, it's Sam Beckett's world and universe, and he's creating everything. I think this episode kind of proves that that wasn't necessarily the best way to do Quantum Leap. It was interesting. To me, it was kind of like an experiment, and maybe it really was Donald, you know, telling the studio, see, this is why we don't do that. <laughs> you know, who knows? But um, I'm happy that we have, uh, you know, Albie to bounce this off of, uh, especially, you know, with his point of view. I think you guys are doing really great on this episode, and I can't wait to listen to it, and I'm going to hand it over to you. The only thing I'd want to mention is, did you see the fun little cameo by Donald P. Belisario, but not him? Yes. Yeah, I actually noticed that on first viewing. (laughs) So hopefully you talk about that in a little bit. And uh, I can't wait to listen. And No, wait, 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 wait. Before you leave, before you leave, (laughs) I I want to say to the audience now – not only did we have Albie on here uh, for his Quantum Leap knowledge, he also read 112263, but most importantly, he is the producer of this show. He invented it. He hired us. So if you like this show, Albert Burge was the guy who made this happen. So to have him on the show uh, you know, is certainly a pleasure for uh, you know, multiple reasons. But I just want to say thanks for inviting me to the party. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, so, and thanks for coming on the show. 
Yeah, honestly, without you, I had no idea how much I could talk. Ain't that the truth? Juan, <laughs> <laughs> you're still there. Juan, the editor who has to, you know, cut all this crap out and make us sound reasonable. Uh, uh, thanks uh, to Juan for again. also coming on board. <laughs> editor, co-executive producer extraordinaire, talent booker. Yes. Mr. Wan. And, of course, host of his own show. Amazing man. Thinking outside the long box, available at barrenspace.com. Which you guys are all invited to any freaking time. All right, we'll take you up on that, buddy. All right, so I'm going to go. And can't wait to listen to the rest of this. And I'm really excited for this crossover episode. And we can't wait to have you guys back on our wrap-up episode. Once the 112263 series is over on Hulu, we want to get your thoughts. Sounds like a plan. I'm in. And we'd also like to bid, you know, adieu, but of course, uh, thanks to uh, Juan Miro, who obviously not only does our editing, but is our co-executive producer. And uh, thanks for coming on the show and, uh, you know, looking forward to, you know, <laughs> going back in your show and being a pest. No, oh, you're never a pest, buddy. Well, I'll be a pest then. Yeah, well, yeah, you're always a pest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Juan, we look forward We look forward to plaguing your life. In many ways. For sure. I, lo- I love the show. I can't wait to watch the series and read the book. Uh, it's a tall order. You better get, you better get busy. Uh, I'm already busy. <laughs> I mean, with the right kind of stuff. <laughs> well, th- thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Take care, buddy. So that's Juan. So, Albie, don't tell me we're going to lose you, too. Well, normally I wouldn't leave you guys, but apparently in my diary that I wrote already, it says that I have to leave the podcast at this particular point. But it also says in the diary that we would hear violin music, and that hasn't... Uh, oh, there it is. All right, so that's another question I had for Quantum Leap Band. How could they hear violin music on a diary that Lee was writing if Sam was there not writing the diary oh, and listening to violin hurts. music? It's so confusing. Right? Al- Albie, you better punch out. <laughs> I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> so uh, I have to leave. I have no other choice, and uh, hopefully I leap somewhere else in this timeline. Talk to you later, Robbie. Enjoy that violin music while it lasts. Treat her like a lady, and she'll always bring you home. You got it, buddy. All right, Skip. And then there were two. (laughs) So tell me. And now that I have you all to myself. (laughs) But now that Alvy's gone, can you be my surrogate? What a jerk that guy is. Thank God he's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. I I need you to think like Alvy, though. Oh, okay. I love it. <laughs> okay, end of the For show. For the audience, good, that, good that's show. an good on joke. He loves it. everything. Okay, he really, really does. He really does. You guys are lucky listening to the Quantum Leap podcast because it's such a good vibe. Then you come here, and as we said, my black, black heart just takes over every show. <laughs> I don't know why. And I'm, I'm going to do, do it again because I had mentioned before um, my biggest problem with this show had to do with the fact that it, in my eyes and in my mind – fundamentally changed the paradigm on which Quantum Leap was based was that leaping was predicated on success and then all of a sudden Al just has a throwaway line that, well, no, it's not. And I was like, what? And that took me right out of the episode. But then the leaping in this episode was so haphazard. They were going through Oswald's life. Now, I know there was a method to the madness, but I found this one to be one of the least engaging episodes story-wise because it was just concerned with an unlikable character that Sam was forced to put up with and at times was completely overtaken by. 
And it wasn't Sam we were watching. It was Sam as Oswald. And that was kind of a neat twist because they had played with that idea a little bit in the episode The Leap Back in which Sam and Al switch places. And they even referenced that episode in this episode. But in that episode, they played it to comedic effect because Sam is such a prude. And because he switched places with Al, um, some of Val's neurons and masons stuck with Sam. Some of Sam's neurons and masons stuck with Al. So Sam was uh, acting a bit like Al. Al was portraying traits that were more commonly associated with Sam. And it was great because they were able to play against type and to really um, make fun of one another. In this case, they took it to the extreme because you need to have Sam acting as Oswald in order for a lot of this plot to go forward. Otherwise, number one, history has changed in weird ways because Sam is not doing what Oswald would have done in that case. And we have to stick now to the historical script. That's not a constraint Quantum Leap ever had. And number two, when he was sticking to that script, he wasn't very likable. So it was hard to get engaged because it was at random points in this person's life, acting in a way that you didn't like, to what end? Okay, first he comes in and he's in 63. And then he goes back and he's in 59. And then he goes to whatever. And we're leaping haphazardly throughout Oswald's life for what is really not um, any kind of coherent reason. And Skip, I know that you said that you, did you say that you liked that aspect of this episode? The fact that he was sort of skittering along Oswald's timeline haphazardly? Um, I think that when it comes to this episode, it is clearly and obviously a flawed episode. So my enjoyment of this episode has to take into account that it's got problems. But I I have to, you know, uh, admit, no matter, you know, I have to look at it uh, objectively in the fact that I can, I, we're going to pick it apart. I'm happy to pick it apart. But damn, I'm entertained. There's only one part of the episode where I'm actively bored. I feel like time is just being wasted and I'm not learning anything. It's just uh, a time filler. And it actually, you know, honestly kind of ticked me off. I'm like, I never liked this part, did I? No, I hate it because there's nothing happening that seems to matter. And that's the episode in the bar where the fight happens. Mm -hmm. And it just goes on and on and on. What am I learning here? What character motivation's happening here? Uh, It's just going on and on. And what... And there's nothing being learned about Oswald, Sam, or anybody that I can particularly surmise or care about. But do I like them bouncing around? Yeah, I kind of like it because it kept me on my toes. What I don't like about it is it's ridiculously contrived that God, Fate, Time, or whoever is leaping Sam just happens to put him in all these specific places that happened to tell uh, you know a specific story. It really does feel like the writer moved him here, the writer moved him there, and uh, the writer moved him in front of Donald P. Belisario. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I understand that Donald P. Belisario met Lee Harvey Oswald, and that's cute. And you could see his name right there on his uh, on his fatigues. There they are, right? Oh, it's Donald P. Isn't that nice? That's cool. But what do we learn there other than, you know the maker of this show met him? Well, that's nice. But what does that have to tell you about Lee Harvey Oswald? I guess it does tell you... Uh, rather blatantly right in front of your face, smacking you upside the head. You know the guy who wrote this episode has a point of view, and this is why? Oh, maybe there might have been a more elegant way to do it. (laughs) But So, uh, yeah, I have a lot of caveats in that regard. But I have to admit, I I just have a good time with it. And I think the reason I enjoy the episode so much is because it's one of those shows 
where Sam is affected. So many episodes, Sam is just kind of going along and doing what he's doing, but it doesn't affect him. And then you get those episodes, like an episode called The Leap Home, or an episode called MIA. Any of the fans of Quantum Leap know exactly what I'm talking about. The shows that pertain to Sam specifically and bother and upset him tend to be the ones that, of course, that we, the audience, you know, get involved in the most. And in this episode, he gets very upset. And uh, a lot of personal... It's bothering him at a very personal level because he is not in control of himself. So for me, that was entertaining to me. So I enjoyed it. Um, even on this rewatch, apparently I've seen this episode a lot of times because I feel like I could quote it. But considering all that, I enjoy it. I do recommend it with caveats, but the ultimate thing that we haven't spoken about, you had alluded to it before. Chris, I'll throw it back to you. Why did they make this episode? And you, and the clue, of course, is this is the time of JFK from Oliver Stone. Take it away, Chris. Yeah, and um, that actually ties in perfectly with why I think they structured this episode the way they did and getting back to why Sam is leaping haphazardly along Oswald's timeline, why he's skittering along Oswald's surface, so to speak. Don Belisario wrote this episode to really refute all of the JFK nonsense that was going on at the time. Um, Oliver Stone's film had caused quite a conspiracy frenzy uh, in the popular culture. And he was always of the opinion that, no, it was a lone gunman. And he was very, very careful to say, right at the top of the episode, there's a title card that says, what you're seeing here is based on known evidence and established facts that have been gathered since the 30 years, uh, in the 30 years since the Kennedy assassination. So right there, he's, he's staking a claim. He's saying, this is not theory. This is not sensationalism. These are the facts as we know them. And it's the only reason I can think that he went with this weird, skittering, leaping along Oswald's timeline. Because everywhere that Sam goes... Al brings up the idea that, oh, well, this is where we think part of the conspiracy happened. And of course, anything – so Sam follows up, okay, so what, what, what is the conspiracy? Oh, well, we think in the case when he's in Japan and he's at the Geisha Bar, and Skip, that's where that big fight happens. It's a woman from Russia, and – Al is thinking, well, she might be the agent. And Sam's like, don't you think that might be a little obvious? Why would they Why would they use someone like that as an agent? And Al's just like making excuses like, well, that's what you'd least expect now, isn't it? But it turns out she's no agent. She's no KGB attache. She's just there as a desperate woman in a foreign country who found somebody who, that she, who she can talk to. And Oswald is using her to get to Russia. That's all he wants. He wants to go and join the glorious communist society and when sam points this out al is saying well maybe he's going because the cia is making him go and every little thing that they set up as a possible conspiracy the second it's shot down as well wait a minute this is this is the more obvious truth that's going on right in front of our faces then al turns around and says okay but maybe it was this and everywhere sam goes it's almost designed to be like a straw man 
okay, this is a central point in a conspiracy. We don't even really know what conspiracy, but Alice hopped up on the fact that Oswald is not acting alone. So, okay, you're at this point in history to uncover maybe this angle, or you're at this point in his life to maybe uncover this angle. And it always turns out to be no angle. It's just Oswald acting as Oswald, doing what he needs to do or what he wants to do along his own independent timeline. It has nothing to do with the conspiracy. Nobody is making him do anything. And Skip, that brings me back to that bar scene that you were really bored by and wondering what it was there for. I had the same exact reaction because I was watching the show and I was taking notes and I was trying to really, this time when I was watching it, to follow the story. Because that's one thing I've never done with this episode is really try to follow the plot because it's just so haphazard. And I know how it ends, so it's always a means to an end. But... When I was looking at that bar scene, I'm thinking, what's being conveyed here? What's the idea, aside from the fact that this woman might be a KGB agent? Why is this going on? Why are they having this huge fight? And, okay, number one, time filler. But number two, at, you recall at the end of that scene, Sam is completely overtaken by Oswald's personality. And he's about to shoot that guy in the neck with that little pistol. And Al establishes that he can get through to Sam by reciting the four fundamental forces in quantum physics. You're right. I totally forgot about that. And that's how he breaks through the Oswald shell to get back to his friend. And they set that up as necessary later in the episode as he gets more and more consumed by Oswald's personality. Al needs to find different ways to get through to him. So it was setting up that premise. That's why it went on for so long. Number one, I think, really, as a time filler, they had those people there. And I don't know if there were two other people that maybe Belisario knew that witnessed that. But there were two GIs in the bar, two Marines, that they kept cutting to. One was puking in the toilet. And one had taken up a woman that Oswald had rejected at some point, and they seemed to be spending an inordinate amount of time on these two background characters. So I'm wondering again if that was something that Belisario put in there because it might have been an experience from some buddies that he knew or something. Uh, who's to say? And again, that brings us to that part of the episode that you said about Belisario doing the cameo. It served almost no material purpose. In the course of the episode, except to say that I met this guy, this was my interlude with him, I'm writing the episode, I'm directing the episode, and this is my show, so it's going to be in it. Now, first off, uh, thank you for clearing that up, because you're absolutely correct that um, I had completely forgotten the, you know, the finale to that episode, which is Oswald completely taking over Sam and Al finding a way to get back to him, and that makes perfect sense. Um, so at least the epi- at least the scene had a purpose. Um, even though at the time, boy, I remember back then, you know, why is this fight going on so long? And today, yeah, it really does feel like filler. Like they needed another 30 seconds. So let's just let this fight keep going and going and going. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, the Belisario scene might not have a lot of purpose. But in fact, um, we actually have maybe a clip. Am I wrong? We can actually go to Don himself. Is that, am I right? Yeah, Don's on the record with this. So let's listen to what he has to say about that whole experience. Something that came up in uh, the Quantum Leap uh, series was the two-parter Lee Harvey Oswald. I understand you actually met Lee Harvey Oswald while you were in the military. I met him when I was a Marine, and when I was separating 
from uh, the Marine Corps back in 1959, I went over to my old outfit. I was down at El Toro, and I was separating there, and I went to my old outfit, which was uh, Max 9. It was over at uh, MCAAS uh, El Toro, uh, which is where they used to have the blimp hangers originally, and it was a helicopter base when I, I was there. And uh, I wanted to see if any of my old mates were there, so I went into the uh, the uh, supply shed where uh, I wanted to look at the names of everybody, and they always have a list there. And sitting on the floor behind the counter was this guy reading Pravda. Now, you can understand, this was 1959. It was like totally different outlook on the world, believe me. Communism was the big, bad bear. And what is this Marine doing reading Pravda? And so I started to question him about that. And he starts feeling all this communist propaganda at me. I couldn't believe it. He and I got into an argument. It was Anyway, um, one of the guys there grabbed me and said, hey, forget him. He's, I'll never forget this. The guy said, forget him. He's harmless. And when he assassinated President Kennedy, uh, I saw his face on TV and I said, I know that guy. And my wife said, no, you don't know him. You just, I said, I'm telling you, I know him. And she said, I, I doubt it. And then when they said he was a Marine, formally, I went, that's that son of a bee that was in the supply shed that I got into an argument with at Max 9. And that was my clash with Lee Harvey Oswald. And the reason I wrote the episode, which was the only episode that was based on a true character, because Quantum Leap, one of the things you could do is... If you don't leap, leap into real people and real events, you can do anything you want. You can create any situation you want, which is what we did in Quantum Leap, and then rectify it. Because who's going to argue with you that there, you know, that that didn't happen? But when you leap into something that happened, that's a whole different ball game. Because how can you change? History, you, real history, you can't. And that was a hang-up for me in writing that episode until I got to the end and I figured, I know, because I leaped him into Lee Harvey Oswald, and as you know. And at the end, I made the spin that he's sitting there in the hospital corridor and Kennedy's been taken into Parkland and, and Al shows up next to him and he says, Al, I couldn't save him, I couldn't save him. And Al said, yeah, but you, you saved Jackie. She originally was shot, too. So th that made it work. Now, the reason I wrote it was because my then probably 14-year-old son, 15-year-old son, came back from seeing JFK and told me all this BS about how there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy and, you know, all the stuff uh, that uh, was put in the movie, JFK, and it, it just, you know, when Oliver Stone wrote that crap, uh, 
my son believed it. He said, I saw it. And I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a quantum leap to show you how one man could have done it. And that's why I wrote the story of JFK and Quantum Leap and Lee Harvey Oswald. Wow, you know, I saw Don live at the Leap Back 09 convention, and he relayed that story there as well. And, okay, maybe it didn't have a great place in the episode, maybe it was just a little bit self-indulgent, but it sure is neat to hear him talk about it, because who else can claim something like that and be in his position to, to, to dramatize it? I think at least it's neat on that, on that front. But getting back to the broader strokes of the episode, Skip... Well, in regards to the purpose of the episode, and as we've said many times, uh, or at least alluded to, this is Don Belisario's answer to the JFK movie from Oliver Stone. This is anti-conspiracy, very anti-conspiracy, and which, uh, because I love the Oliver Stone movie so much at the time, and I, and of course it completely had pushed me pro-conspiracy. I was the biggest fan of Quantum Leap, and boy, did I hate this episode. Oh, I'm like, oh boy, oh, we're going back to the Warren Commission. Oh, oh well. <laughs> so for the longest time, this episode just irritated me. But then, no matter how much I didn't like it at the concept level, I always I had seen it many, many times and couldn't help love the show. Um, it was a great episode for me. I can totally understand your your caveats with it, but I love that theme. Which was specific, the the Lee Harvey Oswald theme that was written for this episode. Mm. Uh, I do feel that the show tried to be more cinematic. You know, it tried to go bigger. It tried to uh, you know have broader implications. Clearly, they were trying to appease uh, whatever network directives that may have uh, you know led them in this direction. But it really is that episode that change the quantum leap rules. He's going to leap into real people. And that led to him leaping into Elvis and then leap, you know, uh, mm. and, uh, what, Dr. Ruth and so on and oh, so forth. All the gimmicky season five nonsense. Yeah, it was pretty gimmicky. And if that was the price we had to pay to get a season five of quantum leap, I'll take the good with the bad. Cause there were plenty of good episodes in season five. So, uh, I, you know, with, Plenty of reservations. I, I still do really like the episode. And later on, when I had changed my mind and switched over to being anti-conspiracy, I now look at the episode in a completely different way and admire Donald P. Belisario for doing what he did. And of course, I, you know, I, I, I now enjoy the episode more than I used to. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean it's a perfect Double episode, not by a long shot. Yeah, and I, I have to agree with you 100%. And I was vague about it on our non-spoiler part of the show earlier. But it brings back that point of, even though I'm not crazy about how they arrived at the message, I loved the message that this ended up on, that Oswald acted alone, and that there was no conspiracy. And they even had Al kind of sum it up because he said something to Gushy at one point in the project where Gushy's just like, you know what, you're saying there's no conspiracy? And Al is just like, no, you know, it was just one angry, envious man. And it scares us because if a lone sicko can kill Kennedy, then what, what hope is there for the rest of us? And that perfectly summed up to me why people are so desperate to cling to 
the conspiracy theories that are out there. Number one, because they make had of them and they're somewhat entertaining what-if scenarios. But it speaks to a much deeper visceral fear. The most powerful man in the world can be taken out at any time by someone who is determined enough to do that. And it really just lays bare the vulnerability that we all have. And you want to sort of mask that vulnerability with society and rules and governance. And guess what? That's not always going to be enough. And in some cases, even presidents are going to be killed. And it's scary. It's awful. But we have to accept it. And it was just such a poignant way to get it across because you were dealing with characters that you already care a great deal about. And I think that in this episode, Al has much more of a compelling character arc than Sam. Because Sam is just on the wings of fate. He's at the whim of whatever his leaping is doing to him. But Al is the one that kind of comes full circle. He starts out as a proponent of all of the conspiracy theories, no matter which one. He wants to cling to any one of them. And at the end, he just comes to the quiet realization that, you know what? It was just Oswald. And we have to accept that and move on. And I really loved that part of the episode. No, typical, I have to disagree. <laughs> but there's a reason I'm disagreeing. Okay. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with the sentiment. I love the sentiment. And I love you know even the dialogue. My only major concern, or not, my only major reservations about that, it's just said so plainly, almost to the point of clunky. It, 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 it was one hair's breadth away of Ferris Bueller, him turning to the, <laughs> turning to the lens and going, you got that? i don't agree sir (laughs) it was really in your face and so the way it was presented was very very on the nose although i love the sentiment i wish there was another way they could have done it Uh, and here's but here's the thing you're talking about the difference in the medium because especially if you look at it this is a tv show that's got to get across some very basic ideas in a limited amount of time in a way that anybody watching will be able to grasp them. And I think that this episode failed spectacularly on that front throughout most of it for it to circle back to have Al come out with such a straightforward, it's not even a statement. It's like a plea. It's like an appeal to reason to maybe just ask people to change their minds about this, all this conspiracy mania that's going on. It's a much different animal. When you think about the way Stephen King did it in 112263 to get back to our podcast, as opposed to this Quantum Leap show, I think that he did it so much more elegantly. As I was trying to relay, I think it was in show four, where Jake is talking about Oswald in the book depository, right at the moment of truth. And everything Oswald represents to the generation that lived through that assassination. And King wrote that paragraph and that description of Oswald in that moment in such a way that was so elegant and that was so cathartic. But it also was born on the 750 pages that came before that, building Jake up as a character and getting you invested not only in Jake, but in his entire reality. You have that luxury when you're writing a book to bring the readers along on a very long, slow burn to come to a very satisfying conclusion that's built on a foundation that's so much broader 
than you do in a 42-page TV script. So you, just as a matter of course, the medium forces you to be more blunt, to be more on the nose. And I think that they can be equally effective because they're, they're playing out in different ways. And I think that if you had tried to be a little bit more oblique about it, it would not have worked in this episode. I think you needed that punctuation. I think you needed a point to the two hours of nonsense that preceded this with Sam just going to different stupid random points in Oswald's life that didn't really culminate in any story sense, that didn't really culminate in any emotional sense. Finally, we have some center in this episode, and it was all hinged on Al and his reaction and his epiphany. And that's why I love the message of the episode, if not the execution. I have to admit that when it comes to this uh, this idea, or, you know, or my objection to this scene, as much as I object to it, I don't have an I don't have any easy answer because it's a beautiful sentiment. I do love the sentiment, and of course, I love the performance from Al, uh, in this case, Dean Stockwell. But I don't have an easy answer. Well, if they had just done this, it would have been so much better. But then you bring up an excellent point that the book kind of covers the same idea, but in a very effective way that doesn't... Now, that's a book, though. And so how can a television... In this case, a you know 19, early 90s television show get across an idea like that, which brings up an interesting point that this episode that we're recording right now, this bonus episode, is going to uh, be released before the miniseries comes out. Am I being correct there? Yes, I believe so. We're going okay. to release it. And just so everybody knows, you'll be able to see it here on our feed, but you'll also be able to see it on the Quantum Leap podcast feed. Ah, yeah, good point. So go listen to it there once you're done listening to it here. Well, in that regard... Um, because we are still on the, we're on this side of the show. We haven't seen the show, and I have to wonder. The book really does a beautiful job of, as you put it, being cathartic and getting across this idea. And it, I would say the book got got a lot of that across in many, many different ways and sentiments. And in this case, the Quantum Leap episode literally has Al tell you the sentiment. Hey, here's the sentiment this show is. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. It's a little obvious. And how much more could you do in, in the constraints of the show at the time? But what is the miniseries going to do? You know, it's not a book. You're not in Jake's head. You know, <laughs> you know yeah. a narrator isn't going to pop up. You know that isn't going to happen. So it's going to be interesting to see how the show deals with it. Mm. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Let me just touch on two things based on what you just said. I think that you also have to realize that Belisario was trying to cut through the nonsense of the time. So for Al to say it as plainly as he did, I think that was also a statement on Belisario's part. We're not going to equivocate here. We're not going to talk around it. This is what it is, plain and simple. One guy, live with it. And I'm going to say it as bluntly as I know how, because there's a lot, a lot of nonsense out there and we just need to cut to it. We need to get, we need to pare all of that away and just get to the basics. And while, as you said, Skip, for you, it was a little bit too on the nose, put it in the context of the time. And again, all the conspiracy mania that was going oh, around. You make a damn good point there. You yeah. really do. If he had been too poetic or too uh, too interpretive, right? Right. If he, you know, if he had done anything like that, you're right. In that particular case, you kind of needed someone. You know, you're yeah. completely making me rethink it. Yeah. You maybe needed someone to tell you bluntly to your face, and mm -hmm. you know, there's that. That's a good point. That's no really equivocation. 
you know this this is what it is yeah and i think it delivered on that point and just to talk to the 112263 series that's coming up now what gives me hope on that is a little hbo series called game of thrones reading those books and how rich and wonderful they are i thought it would be impossible to do a good adaptation but HBO has done a wonderful job of adapting the core ideas of all of those books and streamlining them in a way that works for TV while maintaining the character of what's on the page. So if we can use that as a model of hope, then I have great hope indeed for the 112263 miniseries on Hulu because we have examples now of the way it should be done and the way it can be done. And why wouldn't you follow those examples? I mean, Game of Thrones is a runaway hit for a TV show based on a series of fantasy novels. My wife watches them. She wouldn't touch fantasy novels with a 10-foot pole. But she's engaged because it's so well adapted. And all the things that the readers love about those books comes across on screen in a way that everybody can enjoy. So I think that with that in mind... People are learning how to do TV adaptations, especially long-form TV adaptations. And 112263 is fitting sort of right into that trend. So it gives, it gives me hope that we will see maybe some of the more elegant stuff in the context of the book on the screen without that sort of that blunt, non-equivocating approach that Belisario took. That was the demand of that day. TV these days has its own demands. Well, he also had, he had two 44-minute episodes to deal with. Mm -hmm. We now have, oh, I, I believe a nine-hour miniseries presentation. Right, so. right. And people love the long-form programming now. I mean, TV has become uh, serialized to great effect. Look at Daredevil on Netflix. Look at Jessica Jones. Those are long series that are about 13 episodes each, and they work very effectively. It's become sort of the new paradigm. And I, I love it. I love it. So I think that 112263 is going to fall right in with that. I, I can't see. It's up to them to mess it up. Well, I mean, as a bottom line to all this, we are from the 112263 podcast. We are covering the book and we're covering the miniseries. This is something that is similar, a time traveler dealing with stopping the Kennedy, or in this case, learning about the conspiracy. We have other books that we're going to be covering. And my hope is that we will steer you away from the ones that maybe aren't worth your time. Are you really, I realize you have caveats in this episode, but are you actually going to tell people not to watch it? Or would you at least recommend they see it? No, it's Quantum Leap. I mean, as Quantum Leap, I want you to watch it because I love the characters. I love the show. I love the premise. This one fell flat for me in many different ways. But as I said, I think the ends of this episode justify the means and it's worth watching. When I talk about my problems with it, it's in context of, how I love and watch Quantum Leap. Okay. I think that it makes sense? important. It sounded like that you were poo-pooing it, that people shouldn't watch it, but... No, 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 I, no, I, no, no, no. No, and I, I just wanted you to clarify that. That's excellent. Yeah, not at all. Okay. Uh, now that we've pretty much covered this episode uh, you know, in depth, we can now start talking about something else. Specifically, we have the opportunity now, because we are talking about other things, in this case, Quantum Leap, if we want to do interviews for uh, the miniseries, we can talk to the editor, and we, and we have interviews coming. So if you're going to watch the miniseries coming up, and of course you're going to come back to us and, and find out what we thought about it, you're going to get more than that. 
we have interviews already in the can, and I, I know Chris can't wait. I know I can't wait. I, I can't wait until people get a chance to hear these. We, for the premiere episode, uh, we have the editor, Dorian Harris. We have the director of photography, David Katznelson, and we have other interviews later down the line. Chris, who did you interview? I did Tanya Pinkins, who has a role in the miniseries. I also did Miranda Calderon, who has a role in the miniseries. And down the line for further bonus episodes, we'll be talking about other Kennedy time travel properties, movies, books. I interviewed a writer-director named Robert Dyke, who did a movie called Time Quest. And I also spoke to the star of that movie, one of the stars of that movie, Caprice Benedetti, who played Jackie Kennedy in that movie. So that's the kind of stuff that we're gathering here, and some of it's going to be 11-22-63, and all of that 11-22-63 stuff is going to be airing concurrently as the episodes air. But beyond that, we have a whole body of stuff that we're building up, like Skip said, much like this Quantum Leap episode. Ah, now see, we don't have to promise, hey, you know, down there in the future, you got some great interviews. No, we have interviews today to talk to you about. Okay, so here's where things get very exciting for me, because once I found out that we could cover other properties, in this case, Quantum Leap, that gave me the opportunity to go through the cast and crew list for these particular episodes. And now it's open season. I can now choose any one of these people and now bring them onto the show. And I just went down the list and I found and I started to see some names that I really wanted to talk to. And I was lucky enough to get this name popped up. And when I saw his face, I said, I don't care if that guy says two seconds about Quantum Leap and I can talk about other things. I got to contact Elia Baskin and I uh, went through his people. And the next thing you know, I'm on the phone with the man and we're setting up the interview and he invited me to his house. That was a thrill. I'm a big fan. I've been a fan of his since uh, 2010, the year we made Contact, uh, the sequel to 2001. And he plays Max. And his performance in that film will always, for me, stand as my favorite work of his. Now, hopefully someday he'll change my mind and do something else even better. But that's what I always remember him as. But you, dear listener, will possibly and most likely remember him from so many other places. His biggest role that a lot of people remember him for is from uh, Moscow and the Hudson, but uh, you most likely remember him recently from Spider-Man 2 and 3. He played the irascible landlord, Mr. Dickovich, who was always screaming at the hapless Peter Parker for, you know, where's my money? Where's my rent? That's, that is Elia Baskin. So wait a minute, why are we even talking about that in the context of the Quantum Leap episode? You saw him if you watched this show. Um, he played Major Yuri Kosenko. He he is the interrogator who was talking to Lee Harvey Oswald, in this case Sam Beckett, at the end of the first episode when he is trying to get information about the U-2 secret plane. And that's uh, Ilya Baskin. It's a small role, so he doesn't necessarily have a ton to say about the episode, but that gave us the opportunity to talk about so many other things. And uh, it is a great pleasure to be able to present to you today my interview with him, and I just want to say, uh, I now have a chance to say it again. Thank you to Elia. He could not have been nicer. If it was possible for a human being to be nicer, it's, it, he couldn't have been better. And I got to talk to him about his entire career. And it was honestly a thrill. So if you hear me nervous, it's because, oh my God, I'm sitting across from this guy. I was very, very nervous. And he couldn't have been nicer. So uh, here's our interview with Elia Baskin. 
there's a documentary that came out in 2012 called The Guy Who Was In That Thing. It highlighted recognizable character actors. If there was ever a performer who absolutely qualified to be included in a project like that, it was my guest today. IMDb currently lists him with 89 acting credits, dating back to 1972. But like the actors in that documentary, his name isn't the most well-known. When I tell people about him, I consider the age of the person I'm speaking to. If they're younger, I bring up the highly agitated landlord, Mr. Dickovich, from Spider-Man 2 and 3. If they're my age, I'll mention his role as the lovable doomed cosmonaut Max from 2010, the year we make contact, or the tragic clown Anatoly from Moscow on the Hudson. I'm talking to him today because of his role in the Season 5 premiere episode of Quantum Leap called Lee Harvey Oswald, but we're obviously going to be covering a whole lot more than that. I'm lucky enough to not only be talking to the man, but sitting here across from him in person, Ilya Baskin. Obviously, it's great to meet you. Uh, likewise, and uh, we both are lucky. <laughs> um, and you didn't mention your girlfriend. Oh, my girlfriend is sitting here. Uh, special guest star Ellen Everett in the background. Say hi, Ellen. Hello. Yeah, see, there she is. Now, um, this is going to be a very vague question, but I'd like you to answer it any way you want. Could you please talk to me about why and how you came to America originally? Oh, you know that that that's a, a thing that we can talk like for hours. <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, there was a possibility in the late seventies uh, when the relationships uh, with the two countries, USA and the Soviet Union, were kind of getting a little bit better, a little bit softer, and. Uh, the Iron Curtain started, they lifted a little bit, and uh, there was a possibility for people who had relatives abroad to apply to leave the country. Uh, nobody, nobody knew how long it last. It, I mean, the curtain is a curtain. I mean, it could what year would this be? Like mid seventies, er, like early to mid seventies. Okay. I, I left Soviet Union uh, in nineteen seventy six, but uh, prior to me, like three years, immigration already has started. So, um, uh, yeah, I was afraid to miss this opportunity, and I applied, and I was fortunate enough to get the permission, and I left. And I left, uh, actually, uh, I was 25 at the time, and uh, I had a nice beginning of an acting career. I already did a couple of television series in back in Russia, and uh, thought that, I mean, that was the biggest fear. Would I be able to do the same when I crossed the border? And when I decided that, because there was no way back, like now, you couldn't come back. Mm-hmm. You, 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 gave, you actually gave up your citizenship in the Soviet Union when you immigrated. And, uh, but I decided that uh, it was the risk because while I was living, I mean, everybody at that time couldn't travel, see the world. And, and, uh, and here uh, to miss this opportunity, I thought would be very silly. So... I took the risk, and uh, I was ready to do something else. How big was your career before you moved here? It wasn't huge. I was a recognizable face, sort of like now. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't a huge star. When you came to America, you've been in so many films and television shows. When did people really start to recognize you on the street here? It happened 
now and there before Moscow and the Hudson, but the biggest part at that time I had in the major motion picture was Moscow and the Hudson, directed by Paul Mazursky, was late uh, Robin Williams. And uh, because it was one of the leads, I played this, as you mentioned before, Clown Anatoly. And uh, people who saw the film started to recognize. Plus, I got uh, very good publicity out of it. No, actually, it's not true because the publicity came after 2010. Uh, that's when I got on, had uh, appearances, three appearances on Johnny Carson show. I'll be definitely asking you about 2010. And uh, one on David Letterman. So, uh, I mean, I got some exposure and, uh, and that's what made uh, people recognize me. In regards to Moscow and the Hudson, uh, it told the story of a Russian who defects to America and how he adapts to our culture. Did the movie get it right? Was it authentic? Did you personally relate and recognize the problems that the character faced, or was it just a Hollywood version of that scenario? No, no, it was it was quite authentic. And, and uh, uh, Paul, um, um, I mean, Paul Mazursky, the director and the producer of the movie, actually traveled to Russia, and as a tourist, he couldn't uh, tell the government that he was there to research. And he met with dissidents, he met with few people there and he worked with people who were from Russia and living in the United States. It was 1982, I think, when we started working on the picture. But he started even before that, writing it. It was Leon Kapitanos, his co-writer. It was pretty authentic. Of course, I mean, you you couldn't be like Moscow was shot in Munich. And, uh, I mean, there, there were things that uh, had to be adapted, but, but more or less I think it was pretty authentic and pretty good. Um, you ended up working with director Paul Mazursky again in Enemies Love Story and The Pickle. Did he seek you out for those future roles? Yeah, yeah we happen? became friends after the movie. Oh. After Moscow and the Hudson, we became friends. And unfortunately, the last time I couldn't even say uh, I saw him, it was... Last year, when he passed away, right, and I was at his uh, memorial, and uh, he was uh, on the machine that uh, what, what is, uh, is it? Is it dialysis? Dialysis okay. machine for a couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, were there any other roles that he wanted you for, but you were too busy or unavailable? Something else you might have done with him? That- there was uh, something in. Uh, Moon over Parador, I don't even remember why it didn't work out, but he, he was talking about, not a very big part, but he was talking about it, but so, something went wrong. I don't remember exactly what what it was. Okay, here's where I get to kind of be a jerk. Um, I'm supposed to come to talk to you about your participation in the uh, Quantum Leap episode. We'll get to that in a second. But um, really, I'm here because I'm I'm a fan ever since 2010. Thank you so much. And, and we will talk about that. Um, but to fulfill my obligation, even if you only say, beats me, I don't remember, <laughs> I have to ask. Um, I understand that for Quantum Leap, it was a small job and you did it way, 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 way back in 1992. But is there anything you can tell us about your part in the episode? Doing the show Quantum Leap, which had its own, you know, unique, uh, had its own unique spin. Yeah, and um, yeah, I met two remarkable people, actually three. Don Belisario was one who hired me, mm-hmm. and then uh, it was uh, a lot of fun working uh, with Scott and uh, with Dean. Mm-hmm. 
And actually, there is a. After uh, this job, I became a cigar smoker because of the. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that that sounds like Dean. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode. That episode was special because that was the very first one that veered off into uncharted territory and had the lead character, Sam Beckett, leap into a real person, Lee Harvey mm-hmm. Oswald. Um, were you asked to research your character at all? You played Major Yuri Kosenko. Was he based on anyone real or was it all uh, all totally fictional? You know, I read and so so many documentaries on this whole crisis uh, and and uh, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I didn't do much research. Uh, and uh, was he a real person? I think there was a person by that name. Okay. This one is more for me. I, I really have to ask this. Um, we're obviously talking about uh, the podcast 112263 um, deals with a time traveler trying to stop the Kennedy assassination. But I now have the opportunity to talk to someone who was living in Russia and alive at the time when you were a teenager, I guess. Yeah, I was 14, right? 64? Uh, 63. So, yeah, I was 13. Um, can you tell me anything in regards to someone living in Russia who heard about John F. Kennedy being assassinated? I, I think it was a big uh, shock for everybody. I mean, nobody was happy about it, even we're adversaries. But, I mean, Kennedy was a very charismatic and likable leader. And, I mean, I'm talking... I'm talking uh, from a teenager's point of view. Sure, no, that's because, exactly what I want. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I remember. But I don't remember people cheering, oh, an enemy's president was assassinated. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were some talk on television about the way of life in America, how the guns are available. Uh, I mean, and, and but but basically, basically uh, the tone was very subdued and people really uh, felt for the Americans. Uh, this is the most common question people get asked around that time. Do you remember where you were when you heard that the, the president had been killed? No, I didn't smoke cigars then and uh, <laughs> didn't have a girlfriend. No, I don't remember where <laughs> I was. Okay. I thought I'd ask. Uh, I'm an unabashed fan of 2010, as I said, and I was the perfect age for that film. I was 13 years old. That movie just completely floored me back in the seat. Uh, mm-hmm. I had never heard of 2001. I oh, you no, didn't see before? No. Oh, okay. I had no idea 2010 was even a sequel. I just want to open this up as broadly as possible. How'd you get the role? What was it like shooting it? Tell me anything you want to say about 2010, the year we made contact. That was the actually easiest job that I... Uh, I've gotten. I mean, uh, I'm talking about getting a job because uh, it was Moscow and Hassan was fresh Peter Himes the director of 2010 just called Paul Mazursky and said I need Russian actors that guy I need that guy <laughs> no no he said I need who would you recommend and uh, Paul recommended me and uh, Oleg Rudnik and Savely Kramerov who unfortunately is no longer uh, was he the tall, skinny one? No, that's Oleg Rudnik. Oh, the, um, I, I, that's right. I saw him recently. He did die recently, right? Um, the shorter one. The shorter one, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He. Uh, this is going to sound so vain and stupid, but this is the only way. Uh, shine a light on his face. Make sure he doesn't turn blue. Him. That actor. That's right. The, the, the guy who played uh, the KGB agent in Moscow. Right. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Who ended up uh, selling uh, hot dogs. Right. Now, were you, did you continue, because obviously uh, he, as well as the other KGB agent, also in 2010, were all three of your friends? Did you continue to stay in contact? Uh, Yes, 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 yes. Uh, With with the one who passed away, we were very close. And uh, Oleg Rudnik, uh, I actually uh, suggested him for the part, and Mazursky liked him, and he hired him. Excellent. But uh, going back to 2010, I remember I didn't audition for it. I just had a meeting with Peter Himes. He looked at me and uh, said, okay, you grow, you must grow a beard. I say, uh, I, I can't. He said, what do you mean you can't? It's either you have the part, you grow the beard and you have the part or you don't. But I, for some reason, thought because I tried to grow a beard before. And How old were you at the time? I was, uh, what, 30-something. Okay. But for some reason, um, my when I tried to grow a beard, before that, it sort of grew in patches, like boom, 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 different places, and I hated it. So I, 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 um, so that was uh, his condition. He said, you either grow a beard and then the part is yours or uh, forget about it. So <laughs> from that moment, the beard started to, to, to grow. <laughs> No fool no, on you, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so you had to make the leap from not only Moscow and the Hudson, but now to a big budget, super special effect, you know, big extravaganza. Mm-hmm. What was it like going from your previous films to that one? But the Moscow and the Hudson wasn't a low budget. Not no. low budget. No, no, definitely not low budget. Yeah. So, so it, of course, there were a lot of a lot more things that we have to learn, like floating. In space, and it had a lot of more uh, physical activities that I, I mean, in normal life, I never did before, and that was very interesting. Very, we had beautiful, beautiful stunt coordinator, and we flew, and it was like, I mean, just coming back, it's every every day was something to look forward to, you know. Every day, something you learn something new, and. Uh, and of course, of course, it was such a privilege to work with a cast like we had. We had John Litko, we had Roy Scheider, Helen Mirren, hmm. Bob Balaban. I mean, all the actors that I was the biggest fan of. And now, when it comes to that location, because obviously we're not, uh, this is pre CGI. Um, no, no, no. We shot actually out of space. We, we, oh, well, <laughs> sure, sure. Of course you do. Um, no, but the uh, um, the location, the the set for your spaceship, for your ship, looked. I mean, it's still to this day. I think it looks really great. Yeah, and, and but by the time you saw it for the first time, you didn't see uh, two thousand one. But there, no? there were a couple of pieces from the uh, Kubrick film. Really? Yeah. No, wait a minute. I had heard the rumor that um, Kubrick had deliberately destroyed everything because he was afraid that the old 50s making films mentality that they were going to reuse Hal and reuse that and the discovery would show up on Bionic Woman. And <laughs> so. There were there were, uh, there were a few things that, uh, that uh, were from that film. That still that, survived. That I know for sure, yeah. Oh, okay. When I think of your performance in that film, and obviously I've seen you in many things since, and... 
it would sound so rude of me. Uh, there's a rude way to say it, and I don't want to say it that way. Um, but it's still my favorite performance of yours because there, there was something not not just sweet, but there was a naturalness to it, and the way you played off of obviously, especially John Lithgow, but. The character of Max and what you brought to it, it's still my favorite. And now maybe that's Thank just you. me being sentimental. <laughs> Having such a long resume of film and TV show roles, I basically covered my own favorites. But for now, let's start with your films. Besides Moscow and the Hudson, 2010, and the two Spider-Man movies, you were also in Being There, the first Austin Powers, Air Force One, Transformers 3, the list goes on and on. Can you mention any personal favorites that were memorable or enjoyable to work on? Uh, any feature films that you've worked on? We'll get to TV in a second. You know, there were so many, they're all so different, and every project brought something new. Like, uh, uh, you you know the word being typecast, right? So basically, I, I was ready to play good or bad Russians for the rest of my life, and when all of a sudden, uh, a French director, Jean Jacano, invited me to play an Irish monk in uh, The Name of the Rose with Sean Connery and Christian Slater. Uh, that was, uh, uh, to, for me personally, it was the biggest achievement. I don't have to play a Russian now. I can be the man of the world, you know, and uh, not mentioning the, the fascinating experience of shooting this movie. We shot it in two places. We shot it, we started up in a real monastery, 13th century monastery uh, in Germany, and uh, uh, the second half of the film was shot near Rome, where we built a copy of this monastery, because if you remember, if you saw the film, and remember, it's they had to burn it down. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't burn the real monastery. Germans would be probably not very happy. Right. But uh, oh, I forgot to mention uh, Ron Perlman. Yes. Yeah, Ron did Perlman. a fascinating job in this movie. And, and to work with a great, great group of uh, European actors. Uh, F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham. Uh, uh, he's not European. He's an American actor. But uh, there was uh, um, Michelle Lansdale or Michael Lansdale because he's half French, half English. So mm-hmm. uh, you may call him both ways. <laughs> uh, Austrian, uh, great Austrian. Uh, they called him uh, Orson Welles of Austria, Helmut Qualtinger. And a couple of others. I mean, it was a while ago, so I don't remember the names. But very, very strong cast of of people. And this is an off-the-wall question, but uh, I've seen a fair amount of your work, but I've never heard you do an American accent. Do you do an American accent? Only when I dream. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, one day I, I want to play a sheriff from Alabama, but it's, <laughs> I don't know... Uh, I'll be probably 143 by then. <laughs> uh, your TV resume is also extremely long. Today we're talking about Quantum Leap, but you were also featured in everything from MacGyver, Roseanne, Northern Exposure, Larry Sanders Show, Walker, Texas Ranger, Mad About You, to more recent shows like Criminal Minds, Heroes, Rosalian Isles, and Castle. Same question again. Can you name shows that were particularly fun or fulfilling to work on? The same answer. I mean, they all were different, and... Uh it was very interesting to work on television at the beginning of my 
uh, career here because it's it was so different from what we used to do back in Soviet Union. I'm talking about the professionalism of the crew and, uh, and ever, I mean they shot in a week what we would do like in three months in, back in Russia. So it was this was new and that was interesting and my guy was shows. I, I I mean I I did a couple of them and and I didn't know the. I mean, all even Chuck Norris is the uh, Walker Texas uh, walks, Walker Texas Ranger. It's it was so different from anywhere else. I remember the crew in Texas are very different from the crew in Hollywood. They're all very macho, and they're all about cars, about cowboys, about arms, and okay. and. Um, after I finished an episode, I I, I did two. I, I I don't remember which one. Was it the pilot? I was in the pilot, or or it was another one. But I came back uh, uh, feeling like I am a cowboy now, you know. <laughs> and I used to live in Santa Monica, <laughs> and it was after. You remember there was a guy who's now in jail, I think, or maybe he's not any longer, um, a guy who was coming to people's houses and shooting people. Ramirez. Uh, yes, uh, Ramirez. That was uh, in Los Angeles. From yeah, yeah, yeah. In LA. Yeah, but all over. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. So at that time, when, when that happened, I, I decided to buy a shotgun. Because I lived by myself, and I lived in the house, and I just, I mean, if somebody, I mean, I needed something for my protection. So I had this shotgun, which I never shot. I mean, it was just... You just had it. In in my closet. And when I came back from uh, the shoot, from from Texas, I decided, listen, let me check how my shotgun is doing. So I grabbed my shotgun. And in front of me was a television set, and uh, poor Henry Kissinger was making some kind of a speech on television. Okay. And I totally forgot how to pump it. I just wanted to see, I mean, if I have any ammunition in it or anything. And it wouldn't go. So instead of pushing this little knob from red... I thought, oh, maybe I should push the trigger. And uh, if you would want to see a stupid face <laughs> after I shot Henry Kissinger, <laughs> uh, and the, you could actually literally look at me for five minutes, the face wouldn't change. I was <laughs> the whole room, bedroom was littered with glass because television was no more. <laughs> Did the cops show up? No, no. I was actually lucky because I I I, I, I shot the television set instead. If it would go through the window or through the, so well, that's my story about Walker Texas Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for the TV. <laughs> yeah. Hey, live and learn. Um, now I have a diatribe here. I've got a long monologue here, so I apologize for the mm-hmm. uh, very long amount of crap that's about to come out of my mouth. But here we go. For the uninitiated, St. Elsewhere was the ER or Chicago Med of its day. It had a killer cast with Denzel Washington, William Daniels, better known to many as the voice of Knight Rider's Kit, 
Ed Begley Jr., David Morse, and a very young mullet-sporting Bruce Greenwood, a.k.a. Captain Pike from the last Star Trek films. Um, considering all the dramatic heft that the show brought to the air, I picked up on something very interesting. The show featured a lot of comedians doing dramatic work. Howie Mandel, Stephen First, Cindy Pickett, and most know her as Ferris Bueller's mom from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But I never get tired of watching comedians getting a chance to do dramatic work. My favorite example of this is the original actor who played Darren Stevens on Bewitched, Dick York. For me, he'll always be that guy screaming, Sam! <laughs> you know, but, uh, in an, it was a very extremely exaggerated over the top. But then late years later, I got to see him in two episodes from the original Rod Serling Twilight Zone. Um, and he was... Just, he was excellent at drama. So many people who may only know you as that guy screaming at Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker for rent money. Have you been typecast or are you frustrated by typecasting? Well, uh, I, I usually answer because you're not the, the first one who asked me this question. Uh, what can you do? I mean, I, I do have an accent. And, right. and uh, I understand people who come here like before age of 13 from other places can lose it completely. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for somebody who came as I was. I was 25 at the time. And uh, so, I mean, of course you, you, you're you limited. But, uh, I mean, look, uh, African-American actors mostly play African-Americans. So the same comes with me. I... Uh, I don't play only Russians. I like uh, uh, Larry Sanders' show. I did the uh, Romanian uh, in vice versa. I played the German professor in uh, uh, Name of the Rose. I played uh, an Irish monk. I just a couple of years ago did another film, uh, Jimmy P. I don't know if uh, it wasn't released here. It's again, it, it was a co-production uh, with um, the, the French director um, Henri de Plechamp and uh, starring um, Del Toro. Yeah, it's very. It's an unusual movie, but why I brought it up because I play an Austrian professor there. Okay, Jimmy P. And um, it's another film for people to keep an eye out for. I spoke to director Charles Dennis on the phone. I wanted to talk to him about one of your current roles, and he said you played a cold-blooded killer in his film Chicanery. Charles Dennis is a very old friend of mine. Actually, Ron Perlman introduced us, and Charles uh, made a feature film. He shot the whole thing on this. On his iPad? On his iPad. And when he called me up and and, uh, said that... uh, I want you to do a part of it. I just couldn't say no because I—I I mean, usually I don't do movies on the iPad because. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, he came. I mean, he made the movie that was—I uh, mean, for for what it was, it was not bad. Was he coming. tells me that apparently an actor who had to work with you did a take of a scene and then he bolted from the scene and came running up to the director. Ilya hates me. <laughs> no, 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 he's in character. No, he hates me. He's playing a bad guy. No, he hates me. And so, <laughs> yeah, he told me that too. I don't know if it's true. I, I mean, it's, Oh, okay, so it might be a little hyperbole there. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, American Dream is directed by famed uh, cinematographer Janusz uh, Kaminski. I hope mm-hmm. I'm getting his name, not totally yeah. mangling it. Um, what, so 
he's actually directing this film. What can you yeah. tell me about yeah. it? Janusz is a great guy. We had a wonderful time. Uh, but that was a low-budget movie. And I saw a cut of it, but I don't think that he finished it. It never got finished? I, I, I never saw the final version. I don't know. I think it's still listed as in production, so I don't think it's like... Yeah. I mean, how long ago did you shoot it? Four years ago. Four years ago. Three, four years ago, yeah. Maybe there's special effects or budgeting problems. Wow. No. I, I, I really can't tell you. I mean, it's not even on DVD. I, 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 I never saw the film. I mean, I saw, like, in the middle of I mean, some of the cuts, but it wasn't the final. Gotcha. Uh, to prepare for this interview, I asked you ahead of time to recommend some of your work for me to watch. And I want to give our listeners a chance to hear, the, hear about the films that you're proud of. Uh, you had mentioned Name of the Rose, but the other one you had mentioned was The Dukes. Both of these, by the way, um, Name of the Rose and The Dukes are available for rent on YouTube, not a free. You, know, you can pay to rent on YouTube. And um, speaking of YouTube, the two episodes from St. Elsewhere, someone else has already put up online. So on our website at barrenspace.com slash 112263, we'll not only have your very handsome face, but a link to all as many of these as we can find. And we'll probably find oh thank you thank you that's uh, did, did you have a chance to take a look at the dukes i did watch the dukes uh this is if you get a chance to look at the dukes it was uh co-written i think produced and definitely directed by robert dobby that's right um and many people know him as special agent johnson from die hard uh, <laughs> um, i know robert dobby from uh he was the bad guy in james bond's james license bond. to kill yeah that's right and um but he's definitely another one of those guys just like Ilya baskin if you see you just need to see his face oh that guy yeah he's at everything <laughs> um so but he became a triple threat wrote produced and directed this and that's right. uh, uh it's definitely a charmer please tell listeners about the dukes uh, it's a very warm uh, human picture. It doesn't have any special effects. You will not jump and up and down, and you wouldn't be scared by watching it. It's, right. it's a very heartwarming picture about, uh, I, know I can say some of the plot, about aging rock stars who... What were they? Doo-wop stars? Oh, doo-wop stars, yeah. Yeah, they were 50s yeah. doo-woppers, yeah. That, that's right, yeah. But... Uh, I'm a foreigner, you know. I can. There you uh, go. Yeah. And um, it's about human relationships, and I uh, and it's a comedy, and they have uh, Robert Davi is starring in it. Uh, Chaz, right? Chaz Palmin, Terry, and uh, I mean quite a few good actors, and it's it's a very. Uh, I think did did you find it funny? It was a cute movie. Yeah. Uh, a shout out to a friend of mine, Melora Harden. I uh, was in the movie, and so uh, uh-huh, yeah, I'm on Laura. Team Melora. Uh, mm-hmm. I worked with her on her uh, small independent film, uh, yeah. starring and written by her husband called You, and uh, she was wonderful. She was very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, obviously recommended. Unfortunately, it had a very small release, and not, not that many people saw it. But you can rent it. It is available, so, yeah. uh, so mm-hmm. people can, and we'll give you the link uh, on our website. Now, we've spoken about so many of your film and television projects. Do you have a favorite director that you've ever worked with? Uh the director that I mentioned before, we were became very good friends after uh, working with him on my first picture. I was talking. Uh, I'm talking about Paul Mazursky, and uh, that was like lifelong friendship. I mean, till he passed away. Oh, oh, Peter Himes was a wonderful director to work with, and uh, Jean Jacques. Another. I mean, it's uh, of course. Uh, Peter uh, 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 Wolfgang Peterson. Oh, from which project? Air Force One. Air Force One. 
Well, I was very fortunate. I worked with great directors, and but uh, only with one of them we kept friendship like throughout the life. It's Paul Mazursky. I saw Moscow on the Hudson, and uh, you're going to take offense, and don't don't take offense. Um, the first time I saw Moscow on the Hudson, I hated it because I was 13 because I thought it was a comedy. I'm leaving. Yeah, yeah. Look at him go. <laughs> and. Um, I was 13, and I think, uh, oh, I'm going to go see a Robin Williams movie, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think even the trailer made it sound like it was going to be, not that it didn't have funny parts in it. So it starts off, with, and it was just a very dark, 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 mm -hmm. dark movie. You had to think. Oh, uh, very much so. But it was mm -hmm. one of those movies that, especially over the years, it's an un first off an unforgettable movie. You, you see it once, you're certainly not going to forget it. But on top of that, I, um, of course, I rewatched it you know, in preparing for this. And um, now more than ever, uh, it's obviously very, very hard to watch with Robin, uh, Robin yeah. gone. But it still holds up, and that's why I wanted to ask you about it, about its authenticity. Because if it was uh, if it was super ridiculous and just completely Hollywoodized, no, no, it was it was uh, very true at the time. I mean, you understand that now Russia is a different country. I mm -hmm. mean, you can go back and forth, and you don't have when. To decide, uh, I mean, if you move from one place to another, you always can come back. Before that, it was impossible. When was the last time you've gone back, if ever? <laughs> oh no, no, no! I, I go back from time to time. I actually, uh, even did a TV, uh, an episode in a TV series a couple of years ago. So, when you came here in 1976, when was the first time you had the opportunity to go back? In uh, 1995, um, Paul Mazursky and I was, were invited f to a uh, 19th Moscow Film Festival. And I, uh, was, I ended up going by myself because Paul got a, an offer to, as an actor to play in a movie called Two Days in the Valley. I remember him in that. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up going by myself. That was the first time in 19 years since I was there. And it was uh, amazing how different everything was. I felt like a tourist. You felt like a tourist? In Absolutely. what way? Because, I mean, first of all, uh, at the time when I lived there, everything was gray. People were dressed badly and... Uh, uh, the only thing was gray and red, the communist banners. I mean, we were building communism where... And all of a sudden, you see Coca-Cola advertising. Right. You see all the neon lights. And the, I mean, I'm talking about, like, first impressions. You see all the cars from all over the world. Uh, I mean, you, you, you see people dressed actually fantastic. I mean, it's the, I mean, in, in the store, you can buy anything you want if you have money. That was not the Russia that I left 19 years ago. But what didn't change? Russian women. <laughs> They're gorgeous. <laughs> Excellent answer. Um, do you have any dream acting gigs that are still out there? Like you know, it could be, you could say anything from superhero to serial killer. Is there any dream acting gig? I have. Right? I'm actually working in a doing second rewrite. I'm. Uh, I think I'll be able to pull it off because uh, it doesn't need a big budget. A, a, a love story, a Romeo and Juliet type of story, where 
both of them are uh, not my age, a little younger. The Roma is 50 and she's 40-something. And uh, she's Italian and he's Russian. And uh, as they find out that uh, both of their parents are in different mobs, that Russian mob and Italian mob, and they cannot be together and they have to fight through this thing. That makes sense. Do you get stopped a lot, you know, nowadays for Spider-Man or for anything else? No, for speeding. (laughs) No. Um Obviously, the first thing that uh, I must have had at least three, or three of my friends. Oh, you know, uh, oh, the Spider-Man. They all throw out Spider-Man quotes, so I didn't know uh, how often. But did you know, not in, not as much in LA. I, I do from time to time. Or people look at me. I know that they recognize me. You, you, I yeah, know what you. You, you, yeah, you, you, you've been in the movies, right? You, uh, but uh, strangely enough, if I am in somewhere. Like smaller town in mid America, in middle America, people uh, watch television <laughs> much more than they, they they do it in Los Angeles. And yeah, I do. Uh, I, I am stopped a lot. I want to say, uh, obviously, on, on behalf of my silent girlfriend sitting here, Ellen, uh, and myself, um, thank you very much for just letting us come here and talk to you about this. Well, it's my pleasure, guys. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, he was in Quantum Leap. We spoke about it, <laughs> and I did my job. Ilya, thank you very much. My pleasure. Come back again anytime. Okay, so now that we're done with Ilya's uh, interview, there's more. Um, anyone who has listened to the Quantum Leap podcast, my very first uh, introduction to Albert Burge was he interviewed me on his show. Now, who the hell am I and why did he want to talk to me? Um, because I worked at a company called Sunset Post back in 1993 where they posted Quantum Leap. And that's how you're listening to me today because he wanted to know about this prop that I have. I hit him up. He didn't seek me out, but I have something. And you should go uh, you know, seek that out and where I talk about this particular prop. But regardless of that, um, because I worked at Sunset Post... And because I had worked alongside people who were actually posting Quantum Leap, well, that gave me the opportunity to seek them out. And I was very fortunate to find one of my heroes in this industry. I've been in television post-production uh, since 1991. And I was only you know wet behind the ears, 1993, what, two years in the industry. And I met a guy named Brian McMahon, who was the colorist on Quantum Leap. And when I came to the company and found out that they were posting my favorite show... That was the best news ever and the worst news ever. Because when you see how the sausage is made, especially if it's your favorite sausage, it, it, it changed my perspective. I now had to sit there and suffer through monitors that were showing pieces of shows that I hadn't seen yet, which was about as frustrating as it could possibly be. But along those lines, I'm walking down the hallway and a guy comes along and he says hi to me. And I know that he's like royalty at the company. He's got no business saying boo. And hey, Skip, how's it going? And I don't know how he knew my name. And he couldn't have been nicer. And I never forgot 
that one of the powerhouse players at the company, he was, you know, the, one of the top artists. He was the final colorist on the show. And there was a big banner I remember hanging up saying, congratulations, monitor award winning, which is the award colorist um, could get at the time um, for his work on Quantum Leap. So he was, you know, company royalty as far as I was concerned. And for him to, you know, even be nice to a wet behind the ears moron like me, I remembered, man, just a classy, classy guy. And I had spoken to him Oh, many years later when I first got into Universal and he was still cool. And then when this came up, it's like, wait a minute, I get a chance to talk to him again and maybe do an interview with him and talk to him about his career. So I not only get to ask him about working on Quantum Leap, but if you look this guy up on IMDb, he's got a very long distinguished credit list. So I'm very proud to be able to offer you uh, my interview with Brian McMahon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on there, Chuckle Pumpkin. Not so fast. See that Twilight Zone signpost up ahead? Take a breath. Count to three. Now let's read it. Come on, it's for your own good. It says, spoiler warning. Now wait a minute. You have seen the entire series of Quantum Leap, including the finale, right? Because if you haven't, there be spoilers up ahead. Consider yourself warned. Today I'm lucky enough to have another in-person interview. I'm at Modern Video Film in Burbank, California, talking to one of my own personal heroes. And I'm sure he's learning that for the first time right now. Uh, he's worked on some of the biggest films and TV shows of all time, including 48 Hours, Star Trek 3, 4, 8, 9, <laughs> uh, Wayne's World, Face Off, The Ring, Tree of Life, and way, way, way back when he worked on a little show called Quantum Leap. With an impressive resume like that, you might think you'd have a name you'd recognize, but odds are you probably don't. Please don't be offended. No problem. Uh, he's a post-production colorist. His name is Brian McMahon, and I couldn't be happy to, <laughs> to be sitting in front of him and talking to him about this silly stuff. So, uh, obviously, thanks for doing this, Brian. Absolutely. My um, pleasure. I, I call you one of my heroes for a very specific reason, and this has nothing to do with your talent and all anyone needs to do is go look at your IMDb to see your work, see many of your movies. But what I remember vividly about you was you were just that guy in the hallway who said hi. And there were a lot of people in that company who didn't do that. <laughs> and, and when I found out later, who is that guy anyways? Well, that's Brian McMahon. You mean the Brian McMahon on the banner that says, congratulations, <laughs> Quantum Leap, you know, that Brian McMahon? And so uh, it's like, why is that guy saying hi to me? No one else does. <laughs> so, um, it just, it's one of those, you know, basic, basic life lessons, you know, how people treat others in any industry. And I've met you know, I find like some of the nicest guys are, you know, the most successful, the mo the guys who have nothing to prove to anybody. They're, they got no, they got no reason to treat you badly. And then the jerks are always the ones who <laughs> seem to have some kind of, you know, something to prove to somebody. But anyways, that's where that comes from. Just so you know, um, I, and I kind of see the same thing sometimes with the people I work with, the DPs and, you know, the big directors, the big DPs, they, they don't, they're already who they are. They don't have anything to prove. I don't really know where that comes from, but uh, I remembered it from, from way back when. And luckily for me, I spoke to uh, KT about you. Oh, yeah. I spoke to KT, spoke to Dan Tibby, and everyone, uh, and of course, uh, Craig Budrick. Here I'm name dropping just left and right. Um, <laughs> 
Good uh, names. <laughs> good names. And all of them said the same thing. Oh, Brian. Brian's great. So uh, I, I wasn't the only one who just had some fuzzy memory of you. So anyways, I was asked recently, what is a colorist? And uh, I think I gave a rambling, really silly, sad answer. So why don't we hear from a pro? Uh, Brian, would you describe what a colorist is? Uh, a colorist is somebody who helps the talent give whatever feel they want to their show as far as the look. I've always said uh, my job is about uh, probably 60% uh, knowledge or or just experience and forty percent bullshit. Because what I'm he trying said to it, not me. <laughs> because what I, mainly my job is to, is to find out what you have pictured in your mind. It's 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 that's the hardest part of the job. Is is you know people directors come in they say this is too candy. I want this a little more snap. Make this happier. Make this you know. And trying to figure out what they mean by some of these things is the biggest part of the job. The most obvious question there is, when did you start coloring? Oh, boy. Uh, in the early 80s. I, I, I was working in a place, uh, a film lab, that had just gotten into, uh, they had gotten into video. And uh, they had probably, you know, at the time, there were probably only maybe 10 telecines in town. Uh, nobody really knew what to do with them. So I was lucky to be, you know, I was just at the right place at the right time. And um, it was in the probably around 80, 1980. And I just, I was lucky enough to, you know, at that time you could get into the chair. There wasn't a lot of people waiting because nobody knew about this. So I just was at the right place at the right time. Were you one of those people that um, just sat down and played around with it, or did someone mentor you? Um, I had I had started at a film lab. Uh, I actually started there as a janitor, uh, just to get my foot in the door. And, and then I got into the video side, and um, they had one telecine. Uh, and I just, uh, it looked interesting to me. It looked, uh, you know, I mean... I, I, there wasn't any class or anything. You couldn't really learn. So uh, I just no got in and started and playing around. And a, and a friend of mine, Steve, who... Steve what? Steve Gore. Steve uh, Gore. I know Steve Gore. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Steve actually uh, showed me and got me going and and uh, and taught me how to get started. I mean, I knew nothing about it. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be at that time, and I pretty much still don't. <laughs> But uh, that that's kind of how I got in. Now, I'm sure it wasn't as bad as rubbing two sticks together, but probably not far off, though. So what gear were you using in 1980? Oh, boy. Color corrector, I think we were on a Topsy. Um, it was a, a rank. It was NTSC only, no pants, no, no sizing. It was just, uh, there was no scene. Well, the Topsy... We did everything on the fly, what we called on the fly, which is color correction while you're rolling now is this movie a tv show or both uh it was uh it was some movies some tv show to be honest with you it was a lot of adult back then oh <laughs> okay <laughs> but um you know when you're when you're learning the most important thing is skin tone so i guess that's that's fine <laughs> excellent practice um all right I, I have a fun question for you uh and I get to watch your face when I ask this question. What is a sunset post 
Ace. Ah. Um. Okay, I got a nice <laughs> smile from <laughs> Sunset Post was a fantastic place. It was a great place, and a lot of us learned a lot there. And uh, Ron Burdett, who uh, is just... Uh, it, it, Everybody has their own opinion. In my opinion, was a great guy. is is still a great guy. Um, anyway, he he uh, he was he was an ex pilot, an ex fighter pilot. So he decided that the people who are in the rooms um, with the clients, with the high end clients, and that being the the editors, the colorist, the effects people, um, would he created this little group called aces that those were his aces his ace in the hole kind of thing and uh every year for christmas right around christmas time we'd have an ace party and he'd take us all out um and uh your first year you got a jacket with uh these wings that he designed tell him yeah please explain the wings this is what i was going for the wings were uh something that were very important to him. They, he designed them. Uh, that was his sign. You were one of his aces. And the deal was, is you got the wings, you became an ace. You got a jacket, you got the wings. When you leave, you give the wings back. That was his thing. And um, most people respected that. Um, some didn't. Some didn't. <laughs> uh, he didn't take mine back. He didn't want mine back. Really? Uh, yeah. I would consider that a high compliment. I, I do. I do. Um, the, uh, the reason I bring up the ace, <laughs> um, I was a tape op in 92, 93 when I was there, and I was only a sense of post for, I think, a year and a half. And so it was real easy to covet the aces. And you just see the jacket and you go, you know, there are people out there, I promise you, there are people in the industry and maybe even people outside of the uh, post-production industry who would hear something like that and go, what? Ace? And you get a jacket with wings? I mean, that sounds a little silly. Or I've, I've told this story to people and I usually get a sidewards glance like, are you making this up? No, 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 no. Yeah. And uh, for whatever, whatever you might think about what it was, um, at that time for a 22, 23-year-old guy like me, that worked. <laughs> that worked for me, man. That was like, it, it, it was a walking inspiration when someone walked by you with the jacket and the wings because you'd heard, oh, he's an ace. What's an ace? Oh, you see the wings on his jacket? Yeah. And it, it was one of those things that you did, you know, it was easy to look up to and go and want to aspire to be it. As silly as that might sound to somebody, it totally worked for me. And, um, you know, I think it, at Sunset, um, he, the way Ron treated everybody, was he knew everybody's name. He knew you were... It didn't matter who you were. You were part of the group. I was just a tape op. He did know my name. Yeah. And so at at, at a lot of places, I think the ace whole mentality of having these aces could be, you know, not not such a great thing. But it worked there. It it, it was... uh, Plus, you guys got your own party. Yeah, we got yeah, We all heard that you guys had this great big ace party that no one else could go to. You'd all be limoed somewhere, and you wouldn't know where it was. By an airport. And the airport was the only one that I had heard about. It was um, always by a airport. Oh, always by a airport, but yeah. I heard about the restaurant that's a part of an airport. I don't remember the name of it. Yeah. The 42nd Squadrons. 94th Aero Squadron. There you go, see? And that's a real restaurant, and I've been there once, and I remember it being excellent. 
Um, but yeah, the, the aces were the legendary thing. And I kind of tried to keep that alive a little bit. Um, I don't do it anymore, I'm a little ashamed to say, but for a while there, uh, any time that I would get a new assist that would work with me for a particularly long uh, time, I would usually get a custom jacket for whatever show I was working on and give it to my assist. And it was just yeah. something, you know, I learned from Ron Burdett, and I will absolutely give it to him, that uh, later on he'd given the QCers jackets, and they were these beautiful black denim jackets with this imprint on the back yeah. of the Sunset logo. And again, it was just about company pride. It wasn't about showing off or anything like that. He wanted you to, you know, to take pride in the company. And that was kind of, it was there. It was visceral. And so uh, I never got to be an ace. But <laughs> and it still bothers me. I was never an ace. And I never will be an ace because Sunset Post isn't here. But um, I kind of kept it alive. Um, when I worked at Paramount, I was a, uh, I was a transcriber. And I don't want to make this interview all about me, but I wanted to you know, complete that thought of the jacket. When I went to Paramount and saw those great Paramount jackets, and I coveted, oh, I, you know, and then I remembered all the Ron Burdett stuff. Okay, well, I want a Paramount jacket. Well, I was only a transcriber at hard copy. And I, and I know it sounds silly, but I didn't feel like I earned it. And then years later, when I had finally made it to Universal Studios, I wanted to go buy my, I felt I could buy a jacket. So I went to Universal, the, the little side store. And then I got my jacket, and then uh, I not only lasted there five years and got my five-year pin, I've been there ten years and I got my ten-year pin. And most, awesome. people just, mo- most people take their pin and put it in a desk and like, well, I'm never going to have wings, but I will have this. <laughs> this, <laughs> is the clo- this is the closest thing I got. It's the same thing. It's same a, thing. You know, and it, it, was a, it was a great thing. It was a really a great thing. Uh, it, it was a little odd at first. I was like, well, I don't want to put anybody. It's not like we're better than anybody else. It doesn't matter who you are in the company. We all are together. It did work as a certain amount. It wasn't about you know making you guys better than us, but it it gave you something to shoot for. You know, you want you wanted to move up to it. You wanted to wear that jacket, and the party and all that stuff was you know ancillary. For me, it was kind of just the symbol. For however that sounds. Anyways, um, now let's get into uh, let's get into more nitty gritty. How long did you work on a little show called Quantum Leap? Um, I did. uh, I think it was on for. Oh, it was, it was five seasons. Five years? Five, yeah, five years. I did the last three, three and a half, I think. Okay. Um, another colorist started the first season. Let's give him credit. Who was that? Uh, I believe it was Mark Nowicki. I, I think that's... Think. Yeah, that's what I... I, th- I think that's the name rings a bell. Okay. And what gear did you use on Quantum Leap? When we first started, I think uh, a Da Vinci. Um, it's right around the time we brought Da Vinci's in. Um, actually, I, actually, I think the first year I was still on, uh, an Amigo, um, which Amigo was, had sticks, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was joystick. Uh, it was ranks deal. And the first year we were doing the transfers from Locon. as the years progressed, we, they didn't have enough time to make the Locon cause Don would make last minute changes. So we ended up going with negative. And then the last you colored from negative, cut negative because oh. they didn't have time to make a print. And the last probably season and a half, we ended up going tape, uh, uh, tape color finish? correction on tape because they didn't have enough time to cut the negative. And it was because Don made a lot of changes last minute. You know, he was always trying to improve the show. But still, even when you were cutting from tape. 
you were the dailies were coming from the negative, so you were still getting a really rich image. You, yeah. but that actually explains a lot um, because when I look at what's been remastered, and we'll get into you know the remastering of Quantum Leap, um, and uh, they used a completely different process and a completely different uh, element. So, uh, and we will get to that. Um, I remember walking through your room and. Uh, um, okay, I was touching your buttons, but not your buttons. I was touching the 888's buttons. Right. And I'm like, look <laughs> at this thing. And, and to me, it was just this big NORAD, you know, control panel with endless amounts of buttons. And you just walk up and press the buttons and then hope I'm not hurting anything. But it was turned off. I, I think I was, I think I was pretty safe. <laughs> but um, I remember the shape of it and it being the 888. And when I got on the 888 years later, and nowadays, I'll hear people talk about <coughs> the 888. And it's like, that was a good color corrector. Shut up. Oh, yeah. That was a really good color corrector. So, uh, you know, props to the 888. Um, were you a fan of the actual show when you started it, or were you ever a fan of the show, or was it just a job? And, hey, it's off the air now, so you can say whatever you want. I was actually hired at Sunset Post for that show, um, to do that show. And I didn't really know a lot about it. Uh, when I was brought over, I was hired there to do to do that show and um, and HBO, um, but I didn't really know much about it. I loved the show; it was a great show. Um, it was fun. It was it had everything in it. Um, I loved the people I worked with, but I didn't know much about the show when I first went over there. So you weren't a fan when you started, but you left the show a fan. Absolutely, yeah. A friend of mine, uh, J.R. Benson. Uh, colorist. Oh yeah, he was doing a bunch of remastering, and um, at that point, of course, I was the biggest Quantum Leap fan. And I, I had just by the time I'd gotten to Universal, I missed it. I completely missed it. I never got to see them remastering Quantum Leap, so I never had the opportunity to work on Quantum Leap twice. I, <laughs> I didn't have the opportunity <laughs> to work on Quantum Leap, and so uh, I had found out after the fact uh, that Jr. had been at the company longer than me, and I said, "So what have what have you worked on?" Uh, this and this and this and Quantum Leap. Oh, you remastered Quantum Leap. Goes, oh, yeah. Were you a fan of Quantum Leap? He goes, man, I'd never seen an episode in my life. And then the first time I started working on the show, I went through, colored the whole thing, and then I had to back up, sync the sound, and lay it off. And so I get to watch it for the first time, and he goes, I fell in love with this show. Yeah. So I would look forward to more Quantum Leaps. And because I hadn't seen them, I would do my best to ignore them as I'm coloring them. So I'm not trying to pay attention to the plot. And then back up and pop some popcorn, throw up, you know, and put my feet up, hit, and hit record, and get to watch a new episode. He said, so for a while there, it was you know, a real pleasure to sit down and work on Quantum Leap, um, which I can completely relate to. <laughs> so um, it was fun. Uh, I'm happy to hear that you were a fan of the show. Did, of course, because you were on the last three seasons, you had to have colored Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. This is the 112263 podcast. We are talking about Stephen King's book and the Hulu series based on it. And for bonus episodes such as this, we are talking about similar themed projects from books to movies, and in this case, a television show, where a time traveler is trying to stop the Kennedy assassination, although Quantum Leap is close to that, whereas in Sam isn't necessarily trying to stop it, uh, or that isn't the point of the show, um, but he does end up trying to stop it and fails. But the point of that show was apparently to find out if there was a conspiracy or not, or at least that was the plot in that show. Right. And I guess the real reason for that show is uh, Donald P. Belisario had met Lee Harvey Oswald 
and had his own specific opinion and completely didn't believe any of the Oliver Stone conspiracy stuff and wanted to tell his side of the story. Lee did it, and here's how, blah, blah, blah. Um, do you remember anything specific about working on that double episode? I, I have to say I don't. Um, I don't remember any specifics I, about that particular show. Thanks a lot, Brian. That's I, a big, I wish big I had Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what the show is for. Well, you know, like I said, I, I, uh, I did my job. I asked him about it. And that's as far as we're going to take it. I, I, yeah, I, I mean... Um, I, nothing comes to my, you know, when I, when we were doing these shows, we, we would start on, um, like a Tuesday morning at nine o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't finish them until Wednesday at noon. Um, so a lot of these shows became a bit of a blur. <laughs> That's and not only that, but now we're talking a good 20, 30 years or whatever. So this is 1992, 93. We're talking about yeah. the Lee Harvey Oswald episode. So uh, I think we can all cut him a little bit of slack that he might not remember a job <laughs> he did 25, 30 years ago. Um, but uh, one small anecdote. Uh, I hated you working on this show, but let me be clear what I mean by that. Not you. I hated the color correction process of Quantum Leap for one particular reason, because it would be in the tape room stuck on one shot. For, yeah. for a, and I'm dying to find out what's going to happen next. And then, ooh, look, it's moving. One cut. Right. <laughs> By the end of the day, I was a very frustrated individual trying to, and then, of course, trying to do my job and keep an eye on this monitor, you know. And so ever since then, I would joke with people, oh, it's, uh, I'm so lucky I get to work on this particular show, whatever that show might be. And it's like, I really don't enjoy working on the shows I like because then it just ruins you it. You can't see them. You can't watch it. Yeah. And uh, so now, it, as fun as that sounds, I thought I was in heaven when I first got there, and then now it, it, it was quite torturous. Let's get back on more, on more safe ground here. Albert Burge is my producer uh, for, the, uh, for this podcast, and he is hardcore geek when it comes to the technical side of it. He had asked me uh, a while ago in an interview uh, about what I thought the post-process was probably what you probably did on the show. And I didn't know you were cut negative, so I was incorrect. I told him that you know it was probably an IP or something like that. And um, so he would love to hear the basics of the whole process loosely. You don't have to go super detailed, but basically, you know, starting with the camera negative, start there and roughly get it to you and get it out to the viewers. Uh, well, like I said, in the early years, it was Locon that I was working from. Uh, so it would it was all shot thirty five uh, millimeter at the time. Um, so they would cut the negative, strike a low con at the lab, uh, color correct it, strike it, and then I would get the low con uh, air print. And um, so when you say color corrected, they would put a basic look on it. They would try to do their yeah, uh, okay. a quick, very very fast. Mm -hmm. um, then we get the low con and uh, we would go through scene to scene. And uh, the shows last, it would, from start to finish, would any be anywhere between uh, probably 20 hours was our shortest, and I think 34 was our longest. How long it took to do an episode? Yeah. To do an episode. Um, it, we, we started in that, in that uh, workflow. Um, we did actually, I believe we did do one or two shows from IP, but uh, every... It, it seemed like every episode they would get tighter, time would get tighter, and uh, 
so then we moved on to the original negative, the cut negative, because there just wasn't enough time to make a print. Um, and it was basically the same process. It actually, you know, when you get to the cut negative, sometimes it's a little easier uh, because cutbacks and things match. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is messed with them. Uh, please tell the audience what a cutback is. Uh, well, if if there's a shot, you know, a conversation between you and me or, you know, uh, Scott and Dean, um, it would be like a shot of you, then a shot of me, then a shot of you, then a shot of me. It's all the same camera take or camera, it may not be the same take, but it's all the same uh, shooting environment for the cameras. So I would color one, a shot of you, and then I would color the shot of me, and then and then I would just use that same color correction as cutbacks. And it would match. Yeah. yeah. Um, after a while, we didn't have enough time for that. We had started doing tape-to-tape. And tape-to-tape is where they would... You know, the, sh- the show was shot on... on um, on film, but it would be transferred to tape so they could do their offline editing. Um, at at one point, we just didn't have enough time, so we just took the dailies. They would do an online, so I would have a master, uh, uh, edited master. Um, and credit where credit is due. Who was probably the online editor? Garth Spurl. Garth Spurl. And uh, did Gary Brasher fit in there somewhere? Uh, Gary would do, I, I believe he did do some, some of the onlines as well. Um, Garth did most of them, um, I think. And uh, Gary would do the formatting after we were done. After we were done, this was an NBC show, I think. Mm-hmm. So at that time, for a while, NBC was into this format called M2. Oh, yuck. M2 was a VHS, basically. Oh, boy. So we would finish color correction on the show. Uh, Gary would that. take it and format it uh, for commercial, you know, all the commercial slots. It would then be uh, satellited to New York where it would be. Actually, it was after that it went to NBC. It was recorded on M2, which is basically a VHS. It was satellited to New York. They would record it on M2, cut in all the commercials and, and do all that, and then broadcast it from there. What you're saying actually makes a lot of sense because you saw, I remember, a dramatic quality change in season four and five. Yeah. And especially season five. It got really sharp. And for a while there, uh, and I still, um, for anyone listening out there who's a hardcore Quantum Leap fan and you have saved your VHS tapes, I threw out all of my VHS tapes and now I'm regretting it, um, that material was posted directly from the negative the actual negative that went through the camera and then not only that you had a lot of input from david david belisario or or julie or whoever else was um, overseeing the project and you might have gotten notes from don i mean who else gave you no who gave you color notes Uh, they were uh david julie uh mostly honest uh in the beginning it was jeff gorson great guy producer um uh, Jimmy, I forget it, Grillian, Grillian, I forget his last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were great guys, and they would be in all night, every night. And Don would do, Don never came in. He would do, uh, you know, he was adding effects or doing whatever he was doing in the in the uh, edit. Um, and then we, all those guys, we'd all sit down and we'd just go through it. And uh, to be clear, David Belisario and Julie Belisario 
uh, son and daughter. Yeah. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, one piece of the process, and there's a reason I'm asking you. <laughs> Do you remember how the titles were done on that show, specifically uh, the main title, like um, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald starring, co-starring, directed by? Do you remember that process? I don't. That would have been what Gary would have been doing, I believe. Mm. Although in the early days, it would probably be on film, but I don't know. Ha ha. I don't remember. Ha, I say. Ha. <laughs> ha, I say. There is a reason I ask. I have props. And there, there is a, uh, there's a whole audience listening to this knowing exactly what I'm bringing out here. Was that a motion? Did they do motion capture? Yeah. Yeah. That is... Um, that was stolen by yours truly, <laughs> or what I lovingly like to say, rescued from the trash. That was how the titles were done, uh, and Dan Tibby Dan would take Tibby, that yeah. and put it on the platform, and they would just shoot it down from the camera, from a video camera, and then do a linear key, add the cyan color, put a, put a drop shadow, and there's your credits. Yeah. And these would sit. This is a, it's basically an animation cell that's uh, fully blacked out. And really roughly blacked out with like a bunch of sharpie, and it's very, very, very sloppy. But the letters are perfectly, perfectly smooth. And then after the show was cut together, these would just wind up as trash. They just lie around. And the one that we're looking at is from the finale. That's the series finale. And when I walked by and saw it there, I remember, uh, and you know, of course, I kept an eye on it because most of them usually wound up in the trash. So every day I'd come into work, I'd, you know, I'd walk by to see if it you know, wound up in the trash, and finally it was, and then I was able to get it. Because once it's in the trash, man, it's all mine. <laughs> so, and I kept it all these years later. And I have a... Um, I did... Uh, I found a way to preserve it in a fun way. Um, and uh, it's mounted on my wall in a way where we took a frame from the finale where Al and Sam, it's at the very, very end after it fades to black. There's just a shot of Dean and Scott looking directly at the camera. So I found a high-def version of that and blew it up and then cut a laser hole in it so these letters shine through because that's how stupid Uh and geeky I am. And then found this LED blue light to make it cyan and all that stuff. But I'm not worried about that. Here's what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about it. not concerned, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to immortalize it. With the guy who worked on the show, can you please sign this somewhere in the black? Sure. (laughs) He wasn't ready for this. No. And please spell your name right. (laughs) Anywhere not on the letters. Perfect. Find Jeff Gorson and David and all those guys. I'm going to get Dan Tibby to sign it. And if I ever get the chance, we almost got Dean Stockwell to sign it. Almost. Yeah. He did a show... um, I hadn't seen his name pop up. I don't really pay attention to the, the celebrity shows or whatever. And, but um, I kept an, uh, an eye and ear out for him. Uh, Scott Bakula does, you know, he's, yeah, he's, whether he's, he's Star Trek, busy. Quantum Leap, or yeah. he's got plenty. But Dean I didn't see very often. And then I finally saw that they were doing a Dean Stockwell appearance in Maryland last year. And I sent this with a friend of mine, uh, Alex. And Alex took it, took it. And then at the last minute, I think Dean had some kind of fall and he couldn't make the show. So that's oh. why this never got signed from him. And uh, 
hey, you know, I hope he's okay. But um, in the meantime, I got one signature, and for now, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for humoring me with that. Thank you. All right. Moving on. Do you remember the finale? Once again, vaguely, I, I, uh, it's, it sounds crazy. Um, I, I, I can know. refresh your memory a little. Okay, the finale took place in a bar that was a, a replica of Don's dad's bar. It was, it was called Al's Bar, and there was Bruce McGill played the bartender Al. Is that ringing a bell? Oh, yeah, a little bit, yeah. He's yeah. smiling. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I realize I'm talking too much, but there's one last thing I need to say. Do you remember when that show was a season finale, but then it became a series finale? Do you remember that? Uh, I do. Yeah, we didn't know it was going to end right away. Um, and I don't remember why it did, uh, what, the, what the reasoning was. I think oh, it, just, it was on the bubble. And, yeah. You know, that was, it, like, it was on the bubble for the last three years or whatever. So. That's, it's hard to believe because it was a popular show. Everybody loved it. The people who watched it yeah. were rabid and they loved it. Yeah. But if you remember, what they did was, um, in the original episode, Sam leaps and uh, he... He gets um, Al and Beth back together, and then at the very end, you see a photograph of Al with his grown-up daughters, and you know he, they lived happily ever after. But that was uh, leading into whatever the next season was going to be. And then when when the show became a series finale, they lopped that off, and they just put title cards up. And I bring this up because I I, rem- I had seen. Um, the finale intact the way it was originally. And, you know, I cried. Any fan probably cried. And, uh, oh, wow, what a great finale. Ooh, can't wait till next year. And I went home. And then uh, maybe a few days later, I'm coming into work, and I walked by the Chiron room. And the Chiron room was by the, uh, the lunch room that had right. the video game in it. Right. And on the Chiron, sitting on the Chiron, not making this up, it said, Dr. Sam Beckett never returned home. And Beckett with only one T. And I saw it. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, that's got to be a joke. They didn't even spell his name right. And being the jerk that I was, I ran to the vault, swiped the master, put it up, and sure enough, they had recut the show. And Dr. Sam Beckett never, I was livid, furious, because the whole show was trying to get Sam home. And now yeah. you find out that well, forever he'll be lost in time, and they misspelled his name. And I do, I do remember making a conscious effort of thinking, you know, I could go tell them they misspelled his name. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't work on the show. I'm not going to do it. And so I didn't. Because, and then the other real reason was, well, how do you know that? Yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> what are you doing watching that tape? <laughs> so, uh, hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I guess that. it could, uh, you know, they left it to, it could have come back. It could have, they could have revisited. I wish they would have. They've been trying for years. Uh, the last real mention of bringing back Quantum Leap, I, I think, officially was. Don and Scott at a convention saying that they were in negotiations to do a movie without Scott and Dean. They were going to make a new movie no. and, and, and start, a, you know, reboot it. Yeah. And which got quite a few groans, I think from the audience. Yeah. So without Scott and Dean, it's not the show. It's not the show. It's just another idea here, 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 here. All right. Um, Dan Tibby was the assist on that show. And yeah. I spoke to Dan before this interview, and I said, what should I ask Brian? He said, I know exactly what you should ask Brian. Why don't you ask him about the party that I didn't get to go to? I said, <laughs> what party is that? Hey, Brian, what party is that? 
uh, <laughs> I don't know why Dan didn't go. No, no, he told me. He told me what happened. Oh, he did? He did. Uh, he was supposed to go. And then someone in, uh, I'm sorry, Dan, I'm mangling the story. Someone who had gotten the invites deliberately, you know, left him out. <laughs> he found that out oh. later. So he was supposed to go. All and He should have gone. And uh, I, I heard later that uh, Scott Bakula was furious that the entire technical staff didn't get to go because he wasn't the only one who was left out. Sorry. You know, we got it. We got invitations to this party that, that it was Scott was throwing this party and he threw it for all the people behind the scenes. It wasn't for, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, the, the end of the show, rap parties, whatever they throw a party and all the producers and no, he threw this party specifically for all the people behind the scenes. I've never heard of that. And I, what a respectable, what a great guy he was, or is. Um, that's just not something you do. You don't I hear, still about, don't hear that. about that. I never hear anything like that. He, he, got, he rented this huge mansion, food, bar, everything. I mean, it was amazing. And we all took a limo out there, and, and, uh, and he did this for all the people that you didn't see. You know, people like me, I, I'm in a dark room. Nobody involved with the show knows me, you know, or, or you or, or Dan or any of us. And he threw this huge party out of his own pocket for all these people. And it, it was just, uh, he was a very nice, great guy. And he was there just saying hello, talking to everybody. And, and uh, it was great. And I, yeah, I don't. There were probably about six of us that went, at least, I'm guessing, from Sunset. And I don't know, I don't know why Dan got cut out. <laughs> and he's still a little sore about it, just so you know. Yeah, well, that's Dan. <laughs> the closest I can remember uh, any of anyone else doing or doing anything even remotely close, and this doesn't even this, this isn't that at all. But I met. Uh, we had some kind of screening for Friday Night Lights with Kyle Chandler, the star of the show. And there were a group of us, a good five of us, who worked in, you know, doing the dailies, doing the final, whatever, and we all went to this. And since we were in a group, uh, later on, as a group, you know, the, the, uh, most of the cast was there, and they and everyone gets to walk out, and we walked up, and we just wanted to say hi. And he said, so who are you guys? He said, well, we do the post. And I go, I do this, I do that. He does this, he does this, he does this. And he goes, so you got... And he just looked, and he and the look on his face was just really beautiful and genuine. He's just like, you're the guys who make the show. You're the guys who put this thing together. You're the guys who make it look the way it looks. You guys are the backbone. Of it. And he goes, I want to shake every one of your hands. And he went down, and he couldn't stop praising the crap out of us. And it was just really, really nice. And so it's, it's always nice to hear when someone actually cares about what we do. So. It's really, yeah, it really is, because... Um it doesn't happen often, and uh, you know it, it, it's just it, it was an amazing thing. It was a really great thing, and I I will always respect him immensely. I mean, I would have anyway I, had it not been for this. But for him to go out of his way and spend the amount that he did and do this for these people was just amazing to me. Now, way back in the day, the way you used to do your job as opposed to the way you do it now, for instance, if you were on an 888, uh, you know, going through basic technical stuff, you would have, what, two power windows, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think when we started the show, we didn't have any power windows. No, no um, power windows. And, and uh, uh, please tell the audience basically what a power window is. 
A power window is in isolation where um, if I take a, a frame uh, or, or a shot, any given shot, I can draw, well, at the time you only had a circle and a square. Uh, I can put a circle around uh, an area of the frame. It could be around uh, the person's face to open up their face. It could be a background to darken the background so your eye focuses more on the person that you should be looking at. Um, and you can and you can treat parts of the image differently. Uh, at the time, we had, uh, well, like I said, in the beginning, we didn't have any power windows. That was a non-existent thing. Um, by the end of the show, I think we you could do one or two. Um, I think you may may have still been. I don't know if that was the eight 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 that we were on back then. That was a um, was uh, a classic. Uh, well, I think we may have started. Yeah, we started on a classic. There was also one called the Renaissance, um, which was in there. Um, and, and these are there all was, different Da Vinci. These are all different models of color correction, uh, Da Vinci color correction. Um, but I, the first power windows, I think you just had a one power window you could do. Um, nowadays, um, you can have as many windows as you want. It's unlimited. Uh, you can hand draw windows. You can have them overlay on top of each other and doing different things or multiplying, whatever you want to do. I mean, it's there's no limit now. Unfortunately, whenever I'm color correcting, I, I, I find myself constantly wanting to turn around and just say, look, you didn't shoot it this way. Why am I adding 20 windows yeah. and, and completely manipulating it? You know, If you wanted it to look that way, why didn't you shoot it even remotely like that? Um, in today's world, you know... What is your opinion about overcoloring it as opposed to, let's say, back in the day when, you know, Hitchcock didn't think we had power windows, you know, yeah. <laughs> and so on and so forth? I still, um, you know, when I'm, uh, I've been very, very lucky, blessed, whatever, to work with the greats. And when I'm working with these DPs, you know, whether it's a Chivo or a John Tall or, or Caleb or whoever, these, I don't use many windows. Honestly, with these guys, but really? but yeah, um, but then again, if I'm working on something that uh, and and it and it, you know that that had a hurry up, you know, a lot of these they try to the production shoots are are shorter and shorter and shorter because uh, budgets are tighter and tighter and tighter, so they end up doing a lot of windowing in here that they just didn't have time to light for. But then again, it's, yeah, I find myself in the same position where I'm sitting with a DP and he's looking at it and going, well, that's way too, too, too dark in the background or that's way too bright on his face. Well, that's how you shot it. I can, I can change that, but it's that way because of the way it was shot. Um, and, and I, sometimes, uh, you know, we can do a lot, but it never looks as good as it would if it was done in camera. Um, that's the one thing I have a hard time getting across to somebody because I, I i keep working with too many people who really feel you know what i'm just going to shoot it down the middle and then we'll fix it all later yeah and and personally at that point what's what's the dp i, I it's it's <laughs> so we can talk about this now yeah the door shut yeah i know <laughs> no one's in the room these guys you know i i feel we've been trying to come up with a whole uh filter pack uh digital filter pack and things like that I, I, you, I got a feel for some of these DPs where, you know, they, 
10, 15 years ago, they're shooting film. If they want to have a look, it has to be shot that way. They would filter. They would grab a coral and, and, and filter the, the lens. And nowadays, they're not allowed to. You no, know, don't filter it. We'll do it in post. And, and it takes away from what they are able to do. What the, you, know, you hire these DPs because of you know, the magic that, they, that comes up in their mind that they can put on the screen. And sometimes they're restricted from doing that now. Um, you know, when I have a DP that, that we're going to do a show from start to finish, um, it's great because we can talk about it. We can, you know, the more communication, the better. Uh, but yeah, I, I, sometimes it, it is over window. You do too much, in my opinion. Um, but I know they're, they don't have a lot of time to set up sometimes. You're being far too nice to them. You know, I, I when I get to work with these, you're they, working with the good ones. So when I get to work with these guys that are just, you know, they're they're masters. I don't do much windows. I, I, Boy, I envy you I, I, envy. at this, all. This I mean, I may have right a couple now. during the movie. Uh, you just don't do much. I have a funny question from the past, so to speak. I told a story uh, once, and uh, you may or may not know this. Do you remember that Da Vinci used to have a glossary in, uh, you know, uh, I think it was around 2K. Might have been, not Renaissance, it was a 2K. And if you right-click, there'd be a glossary. and you, There was literally a Da Vinci glossary inside. Do you remember this? I don't, know. You know, a lot of colorists I speak to don't know this. Well, in this glossary, clearly the engineers had too much time on their hands. <laughs> and... Uh, do you remember Hold Up? Do you remember? Oh that? yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold Up. Yeah. H O uh, half quote uh, D U P. So when the system would get hung up, it would literally just say Hold Up. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. I love that too. And uh, so the same person with that sense of humor clearly wrote the glossary, and there were like three funny entries, and I only remember one. And I told this story, and someone said I needed needed to tell you and see if you remember it. Do you remember what a smidge is? No, uh-uh. I mean, I've heard it a million times. Sure. According to the Da Vinci glossary, so it must be true, a smidge is when a director, uh, is when someone asks you to make a small change and you put your hands on the controls without touching them (laughs) (laughs) and then say, how is it now? And they go, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. It's so much better. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently that's technically a smidge. Yeah. Not that you would ever use it. And that's why you don't know what it is. Good on you. Uh, Well, there's many times that I I won't move anything. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll be going towards, you know, the director will say, or somebody in the room, it's a little dark. And before I actually make the change, because they're sitting behind me, they can't see what I'm doing. Before I actually make this change, I'll be like, whoa, yeah, that's good. And I haven't done anything. So I guess that's a... Uh, oh, that's a smidge, but not an on purpose. That's an accident. Yeah, yeah, that's a self-inflicted smidge. Well put, well put. <laughs> I have a question for, for you specifically uh, in, in regards to trends. Um, I'm kind of a jerk about this. <laughs> and I say this because I don't have any problem with trends. Um, because I, I recognize it as a trend. If suddenly everyone, CSI comes out and everything is oversaturated, right? Or yeah, yeah. Friday Night Light comes out and everything is desaturated. And yeah. everyone, everyone chases these trends, right? And that's fine. And then I got this email from someone one time. And I've actually been asked this question, I think, at least three times. Ooh, what about those lazy, you know, blockbuster colorists who only do orange and teal? 
And I'm like, <laughs> so someone went out and looked at the last, you know, thousands and thousands of movies that have been made, and they found ten of them that might have an orange and teal color, uh, you know, color scheme, and go, ooh, look at these guys. Boy, they're real, f- <laughs> I mean, they're hacks. Yeah. And because they didn't, oh, oh, they're following the trend, orange and teal. And it's like, first off, we usually just do what we're told, number yeah. one. Number two, there's only so many colors out there. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, flesh tone tends to be warm if they're healthy. So that means they're going to be yellowish, orangish, reddish, or pinkish. So, and, and then your blues and cools are going to be greenish, cyanish, or bluish, or purplish. And that's about it, really. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's different versions of it. Yeah. And so sooner or later, maybe someone is going to land on orange and teal. Maybe it's going to happen. And out of the hundreds and hundreds of movies that get made, and you can find 10 that happen to look the same, and you want to cry foul, it's hard for me to get upset about that. <laughs> I agree. So, But in your opinion, could you talk about you know, the styles and trends that you've seen and how, how you've had to deal with trends? Um, there, there, there are a lot of movies that I've done that I don't want people to even know that I did because they, they have an odd look to them. I don't want somebody to look at it and, and judge and say, oh, well, that, that's what he does. Uh, certain movies we do for the once again it's more about the feel of the movie i've i i've had i've done a couple of movies um where you know we end up desaturating and making it look a little uh green cyan um because they want that feel that uh when i many years ago i did a movie called the ring and we we ended up doing it very cyan very green uh, because it has it, they wanted it, it to have that uh, anxiety kind of a feel to it. Um, you know, it, it's too easy, especially when you're working with these great DPs, to make the sh- picture look beautiful. And and sometimes it it shouldn't. It's not the right scene to look good. Um, so it it's more about making it look accurate. When you get into uh, you know certain movies have a overall look to them well really that's that goes back many many years i mean uh, in film we used to do they used to do enr processes enr enr uh it's a, it's a type of a bleach bypass bleach bypass okay um uh enr was de- one of the first it was developed many years ago at uh i believe enr was deluxe um i i'm not sure which lab Ernesto, I forget his name, and they would they would actually uh, develop a black and white, or or take the negative and and run it through black and white developer um, to give it that look. Um, you know, I've 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 worked a lot with the director uh, Billy Friedkin, and we he came in on one movie and he said, "I want the look of I want I want it to look like Moby Dick did when it was released." And thickened. Moby Dick, they 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 ran a black and white. Uh, it, it was back in the in the old days of of uh, a three strip, so you would actually run you would you would not develop but you would expose three times. Well, they ran a black and white through as well, so it gave it a desaturated, contrastier look. What so, film was this for? Uh, we did this on a movie called The Hunted. The Hunted, okay. Yeah. So people and can seek that out and take this, take this information and look at it. It has something uh, that was shot by a, a great guy, um, Caleb Deschanel, 
And we did something, we ended up doing some a process on that, which is insane, but um, <laughs> especially at the time, we blew, we completely defocused and oversaturated one version and black and did a black and white and did a mix and all these things. And it has a very subtle, different look. Now, I don't know if it's been remastered since then, mm-hmm. but it has a very subtle, different look because all the color is, it's slightly desaturated, but all the color is really out of focus, but you get the sharpness from the black and white. So it's a very subtle look, but everybody is always after a different kind of a look. Um, I'm very lucky to be able to work with uh, Terry Malick and, and he goes for what he calls and, and Chivo uh, a, a no look look he wants a no look look and that's actually harder to achieve than anything else to have something try not, to explain that one well it, you know if, 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 the, if, if, I have, if I'm working with somebody and they say I want it to look uh, uh, Chinatown for instance um, we worked on Chinatown, and he shot it with all these rice paper lights because it gave it that warm look to it. Uh, and um, Vilmos shot the second one, which was uh, Two Jakes, and he kind of tried to duplicate that look. It's easier to give something a warm... If, he, if my client says, I want this to be very have a warm wash to it, it's easier to do that and be consistent than to have no look and be natural. Because you don't want to look at something and go, well, that's a little warm, or that's a little cool, or a little bright, or a little dark. You want it to look like a window. And that can be a lot harder. Um, so it's, in other words, basically you're, you're aiming directly for perfection in that regard. Yeah. As opposed to when you're slightly warm, you can hide more. You can hide more because you're, you're overall warm. As long as you're overall warm and that's consistent... You can get it. It doesn't have to be as precise, you know. If you say, if 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 I take a, a movie and I may, and the color bounces around a little bit, but the director wants it desaturated, well, I pull out some of the color. You're not going to see those the color shifting because it's desaturated. So it, sometimes a, a look is is uh, it's always intended for some reason, uh, or it should be. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not somebody who got you know, kind of painted himself into a corner. Um, but, you know, we, we go to movies and we watch these things for the feel of it. It's, it's, it's an art form. And uh, they all have a different feel and a different look, and they should. The big debate. The big debate, uh, and it's still raging to this day. I'm going to make a comment from my own personal perspective and you can you can tell me how full of crap I am or how right on I am and why. Right? When I get asked or when I think about the debate between film versus video, um, I had to, uh, when I was working on the show, uh, Parenthood, they had the DP had convinced somebody that for one shot they needed to shoot film for like this stunt. And I am convinced that he just wanted to shoot film again, even for one little shot. Right. <laughs> so we got to hang film again, and I got to... Uh, you know, go back and do it the old way. And the first thing I noticed, which was something that I had remembered, but then it really crystallized after being on video for so long. Film just, uh, film people idolize and, you know, uh, put film up on a pedestal for a reason for the look and the depth and the grain. And there's so many wonderful things that film gives you. But as a colorist, 
for some reason, it just falls into the pocket better. I can find the center. I can find the flesh tone. I can find the black. I feel like I have to always force the video to go where I want it to go. Film just feels like flexible putty. Push me wherever you want to go, and I'll go there. Right. Am I full of crap? Or what's your impression between the differences of film and video Color, um, from a colorist point of view? I, for me, it's uh, actually, and I've been, you know, I was on film for film alone for many years. Uh, video, uh, once again, well shot, uh, is a lot easier to deal with. Really? Uh, yeah, um, because I'm. Um, it, Are you saying I'm wrong? No, that's well, okay. No, that's it, okay. It, it, <laughs> it also it depends on who how you're getting your film. You're not taking a piece of film anymore and hanging it on a machine very often. You're getting a scan. Well, who's doing that scan? And how's that scanner set up? And who's focusing that? And who's setting? So, if if you you know, it comes down to the the person doing the scan is just as important as you or I uh, or anybody for that matter. I mean, if those scans are great, your job's a breeze. If they're off, you're going to fight it the whole way. With uh, video and 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 really, I'm talking you know. Um, it's more specifically airy, <laughs> only because there's less choices on it. <laughs> um, it it falls into the pocket a little easier for me. Um, I love film for certain things. The highlights, uh, you can't get it on video. You, you just can't yet. It'll get there. It'll get there, I have no doubt. Uh, but as of yet, you can't get it. Um, you know, I spent most of my life trying to get rid of film grain. And and now I'm I'm putting it in, you know. If something's shot on on uh, in digital, I'll end up putting film grain into it, where I spent most of my life getting rid of it. So it's the whole film grain, the texture, and this and that. That's just what we're used to. But that's you know, Kodak spent many years trying to make it look like it didn't have that. Uh, T grains and things like that are, are have you know they progressed and they got better and better and better because. They want it to look like, you know, just what we see in our eyes. And, and digital is a little closer to that. It, it's much better in the low lights. Digital? It's, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember the, the dirty blue channel of film, right? Yeah. Uh, film film uh, blue is the, gra- is the largest grain physically on film. And so it would be, you know, when things are underexposed and things, that's what you're usually fighting. Um, so I, I, you know, I love them both. Um, if you're going to be shooting skies and things like that, give me film, uh, um, because you just can't get there yet. But, uh, but if, you know, if I'm going to take a movie and color it and, and it's shot by the same DP, my job would be easier on digital. I know where my point of view is skewed. It's because I was completely spoiled for years doing negative dailies, constantly yeah. doing negative dailies. So uh-huh. that's really, I wasn't dealing with IPs that were second generation or dealing with a scan that someone didn't set up right. I, it was me and the spirit yeah. and putting my light through it and getting, and I'm getting whatever I can from the original film that went through the camera. So that's where I'm totally spoiled. So that's what I'm, uh, and, and I, I just realized as you said that most people don't get to do that even for, I mean, for a very long time. 
And unless you're lucky, I do remember there were um, for a while there they were remastering from cut negatives. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. is obviously wonderful. So that's where my uh, my opinion is skewed. And we're doing that now. We're doing a lot of you know all the remastering and all that stuff is cut neg now. For yeah. many years they wouldn't give it to us. Oh, yeah. You'd have to have an IP. They wouldn't let you have it. They'd take it and put it on a 50-year-old printer, but they right. wouldn't give it to you to put on a Spirit or a... Or a because or if a you screw it up. Then, tell. Yeah. But but uh, now, but once again, I you know, how are those scans done? Who, you know, it's really, really important. And, and I have to be honest, facilities uh, and, and, and a lot of people, they think, well, you just put the film up and scan it and you have a file. It's not... It's not that you need some, that's a very important process. And you know that some facilities literally have the vault guy scan. I do. And, yeah. and, and nothing against the vault guy. Nothing he, against it, the vault guys. It, but if he's not trained and, and what to look for and, and, and things like that, it's, it can be a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, all right. These, the, this door is shut. Okay. <laughs> Ain't no one can hear this. This is just you and me. No one's going to hear this podcast, right? Right? No one's going to tell anybody. This is just <laughs> you and me. Just two colorists talking, shooting the crapola. How does Brian McMahon handle that color, uh, the client that's colorblind? That's too green. No, it's not. You know it's not. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, he's <sighs> <laughs> big smile. I got a big smile. Um, you know, everybody sees things a different way. Uh, um, nobody's right or wrong. Uh, a lot of times, the hardest thing, you know, is when you have somebody who sees green and it's not there. And I can look at a scope and I say, well, it's not there, but they're still seeing it. Once again, it goes back to my original idea of, of, of you know, 60% knowledge and skill and 40% bullshit. What are they seeing? What 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 is the field that they don't like? What is it? That kind of thing. Um, I don't, you know. There's some certain people that love very pink skin tones. I I know a director that I work with a lot. He loves pink skin tones. You know, um, I know a director and a DP that I work with a lot. The DP hates magenta. The director hates cyan. Well, where are you going to go in between that? It's really, uh, you know, it's kind of like walking a tightrope. Um, I don't know. You just try to do what you can to get get to where they get the comfort level, where they look at it and go, "Yeah, that." I think that. I, I don't know how to. You just you just do what you can, I guess. All right. Here's something I'm going to ask you to kind of go against your. Uh I'm going to go, go against your personality, but, but do your best. All right? <laughs> Bear with me and do your best. You can do it, man. Come on, Brian. You can do it. I want you to get arrogant on me and do a little name dropping. What are some of the big things that you've worked on? Uh, He's resisting, man. I can see it on your face. You know, I started making a list years ago because I, I draw a blank after a couple titles. Um, I, I, I've been very lucky to work with the greatest um i'm i do a lot of work with uh malik terry malik and i and i personally um we just redid uh thin red line which was shot by john toll uh we just redid uh the new world which was shot by chivo i mean these guys are just 
they don't even have to think about it. You just look at these pictures and go, my God, they're beautiful. Um, we did 4K restorations on these jobs. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm lucky in that way. I, um, I'm an old mastering guy. So I, I, a lot of these guys I've been working with for many, many years. Um, but uh, big titles, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Couldn't get him to do it, man. I tried. I, 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 I mean, it, it's uh, I, I, visually uh, the Malik movies are are the greatest. If you're, um, if someone is going to go out, it's like, well, they're 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 interested in the conversation we just heard, and and you can only choose a few of your movies and go. You know, you want to see what I do at my best. Here's a few, and that obviously, when we talk about your best, it's clearly obviously. You know your talent being brought to it, how it was shot, what the director wanted. There's so many things coming into it. But what are those few? If people want to see the best of Brian McMahon. Name a few. The the most beautiful things that I can think of are Thin Red Line. I think it was just amazing looking. And that's a brand new. Down no, no, no. Thin Red Line is. Oh, a I very, know the movie's old, but is it a brand new restoration? Yeah, we just did a four uh, K, a full four K and UHD on it. How long ago? Six months. Six months. So it may actually be out. Probably, yeah. Okay, Probably. so it may be the out. Criterion uh, Blu-ray may be out. Perfect, perfect. So be now, look for that. I will say that we're starting to do things in HDR. Just redid Braveheart for, the, I think, the sixth time um, in HDR. And if you haven't seen HDR, you have to. It's amazing. What is it? Uh, HDR is high dynamic range. And um, is it a new scanning process? No, it's a new display. Um, if you're looking at uh, you know the monitors, like your home monitor or the monitors we look at here, uh, the light level is measured in nits. Um, your monitor that we look at right now is is at a hundred nits. HDR, uh, depending on what you're looking at, actually, if you're looking at the Dolby Pulsar, is at four thousand nits. So it's the actual HDR signal goes up to 10,000 nits. Now, are you seeing more information in the darks, in the brights, everything? Both. Do you ha actually have black now, which we've been, you know, ever since CRTs have been gone, at least in this side, we haven't had blacks. You go to a digital projection, you really don't have blacks. Now you do in HDR. Um, the whites are much brighter, but they're brighter in the highlights. So when you look at it, the, the, the overall picture is about the same level, but the, the bright whites are much, much brighter. The blacks are blacker and it gives you a sense of resolution. It's more like real life and, and it'll actually trick you. I can put up a, well, anyway, well, uh, it, it's a new format that um, we're taking movies that were never intended to be seen this way. And you wouldn't think that it would do it any justice. And you look at it and go, wow, that's amazing. Um, do you think cameras are going to start shooting this way? Uh, cameras really already capture everything. Okay. Um, so the video signal is still there, and but this is a post-process that we're talking about? This is a post-process um, and all it is is, you know, we're able to, we have more, more range to work with. Um, so I'm looking forward at Braveheart look fantastic. 
Any idea when that might come out? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's obviously coming soon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, HDR is going to start hitting the market quickly. You can actually go and buy an HDR set right now. Uh, Samsung has an HDR uh, set. Is the monitor you're using? Uh, it's a, I would assume, a different monitor, right? Or this, is it- uh, yes. Um, the HDR monitors are different. This is right now. This is a Sony uh, HDR. It'll do HDR and SDR, standard dynamic range, uh, in 4K. Uh, can you uh, talk about some of the other projects that you're working on right now? Uh, we're about to start another one with Terry, uh, which I'm I'm really looking forward to. A lot of it was shot in 65 millimeter. Uh. Um, we're going to be working in 8K, uh, which is you know. It's it's a thrill for all of us, but it's a nightmare at the same time because it's so much information. Uh, and and I, I'm that was shot. Uh, that's been shot over years of time. Um, we just we're doing a, starting to do much more of this HDR work. Um, this is actually Victor Frankenstein, which um, we're doing an HDR on. Um, I'm looking forward so. to seeing that. It's 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 impressive. Do you have heroes uh, or uh, you know mentors or you know people who have influenced the way you approach what you do? Um, sure, and and I think we all do in in color. Um, in 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 this kind of a digital color, uh, I've you know I've I've been lucky enough to work with Lou Levinson for years, and. Uh, He's the master at this stuff, you know. He 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 was in the beginning, Lou and Jan and those guys, and uh, you know those guys are. I, when I, I started at a film lab, and so when I when I went to do color, I went down and did film timing for a while because they're the only guys who knew how to do color. Um, ranks were new, uh, you know. We had film chains. But they were kind of pretty limited. Ranks were new, um, and and the only guys who really knew color were, were the film timers. And uh, so I learned from them originally. And then it's just time of, of being able to sit with you know the the greats, the you know the Vilmoshes and the you know the Conrad Halls and those guys and, and Chivo and, and and all these guys. You just learn. You learn so much without even really saying anything about what you do. You just you learn what they look for, and these guys are the masters at pictures. Final question. I'm sorry to say, it's a bit of a downer. So I apologize. Maybe we'll edit it differently. But here we go. <laughs> um, in 2011, the Wall Street Journal listed post production in their top ten dying industries. Ugh. This is a terrible question. Um, how do you feel the industry is doing right now? Would you recommend people actually, you know, go into post production because it's you, all? I'm, I'm I see a lot of doom and gloom, and I think all of us do. Yeah. But at the same time, um, my son had asked me about going into the industry, and then uh, his dad, excuse me, his grandfather uh, worked at Deluxe. And his grandfather got to watch film get replaced. So his grandfather has a certain point of view. Yeah. And his grandfather was like, oh, you're crazy. Why would you go into that? That's a dying industry. Stay away from that. 
And when I heard him say that, I said, well, I think I'm doing halfway decent at it, so <laughs> I can't. But I really enjoy it at the end of the day. I enjoy working in post-production. I enjoy the people I'm working with. Yeah. Um, and they haven't stopped making television. They're not stopping making movies. Yeah. We just do them differently. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. So um, how do you feel about it? Um, I, I feel the, the business as I know it has died off somewhat. Um, you know, when, when DVD came into, into play, it, the business ballooned. There was so much more work because of this new format of DVD. It, after it it uh, it peaked and uh, then it started to die off, the business started to die off. But it's not really. The, I don't think it's the business that's died off. It's just the way we do it. Just like you said, um, there's a lot of people doing things at home. Uh, that's okay um, for cer- certain things. It's 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 just changing from what I know. Um, but, but I, you know, it's going to be these kids that, that don't know anything about the business that are going to create new business out of it. Um, so I, post-production, it's, it's just not, it, it doesn't look the same as it did 50 years ago and it won't look the same in 10 years from now, you know? Uh, but is it a dying business? No, it's just different. We're the ones who are stuck in and looking at it in only one way. Well put. Are there any other Quantum Leap stories that you might have? There, um, there, Quantum Leap was interesting at the time we were always in a race against the clock because of last-minute changes, because everybody was trying to make the show as good as it could possibly be. And uh, so, therefore, we were doing these, once again, these crazy hours, these 24 to 30-something hours, 36 hours. And I have one... Uh, there was one show I was working at Sunset Post and for some reason the Da Vinci at the time went down and the guys from Da Vinci were there they couldn't get it working this net the producer uh, at the time uh, Jeff Gorson and I ended up going over to <laughs> uh, Post Group to do the show because they were the only one, other ones readily that had a, a, re, a Da Vinci that we could work on and we were, because of all this, because it had to be edited, we had to take it over there and, and do everything, we were, we were up against the gun so much that there was a possibility of missing broadcast. And at that time, missing broadcast was, I don't know, million five, uh, uh, cost a million five, something like that. I, I don't remember the exact numbers. And uh, I just remembered we had to color correct the show and then get it back to sunset to format. Jeff handed me the uncolor-corrected master. He took the color-corrected master. It's probably 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. I don't know what time it was. And he said, look, he goes, let's get, get this to sunset as quickly as possible. If you see me on the side of the road and I've gotten in an accident, keep going. <laughs> don't stop. Whatever happens, don't stop. And that's kind of, and we were up against that, it seemed like, on a weekly basis, <laughs> you know, which I guess gave you some adrenaline to get, to, to get through it, but uh, that was just an, a story, just a thought. You know, I, 
I remember those days. I remember, you know, uh, you remember the movie Broadcast News where they're yeah. running and literally leaping over people. And there was a certain amount of that. And I rarely ever see that anymore, especially on the lot, which is, you know, union and very controlled. And people are not going to go running down the hallway. I can't remember the last time I saw someone running down the hallway. That doesn't happen. But I do remember uh, places like the Post Group when I worked there and Sunset Post. There was almost, there. there was that kind of cowboy mentality of let's do 36 hours. I'm not going home. Yeah. We're not paying you. Well, I'm not leaving. Yeah. <laughs> we had, we had one year where, where, uh, Belisario had two shows. He did another show called, um, uh, Turner, uh, was it Turner and Hooch. I think it was Turner and Hooch. Turner Benetti. Something. Oh ben- yeah. Tequila Benetti. Tequila and Benetti. Yep. Tequila and Benetti. It was, it was based on, or it was kind of roughly around the Turner and Hooch or something like that. And uh, we so we had Quantum Leap and we had that show. So we had two shows a week. At that time, I think it was David, uh, who was I think it was David Belisario who was in on the uh, in the room. And so we would do two days. I would work. I would work two days a week. Um, both of them were twenty four to thirty hours straight. In a but row? that's all you could work. No, I would. I would. I think I came in on a Monday and started Quantum Leap. And he'd go home on Tuesday, sleep until Wednesday, and get up, come in and do Turner or uh, Tequila and Benetti, and then sleep again for two days. That's all we did for a year. It's amazing we got through it. But back then, that's, you know, well, back then we were all younger. But that's what you did. Yeah, I rarely see that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah, you don't see it anymore. It's, It's not that way. But then again, you know, uh, you know, I I came in right after, you know, uh, I came I started the industry in 1991, so I missed, you know, the stories of David Lee Roth coked up going down the hall with booze and everything. Oh yeah, and, you know, yeah. I, you know, we would hear these stories after the fact. I I never saw these. So. Oh God, I used to yeah. I I for years I worked at a place called Image Transform. We did music videos and oh geez, the craziness that would happen over there. All right, to wrap up, um, I knew that I was going to... Uh, for anyone out there who might feel that we uh, there was too much inside baseball or too much tech or whatever, <laughs> um, for anyone out there who feels that way, tough. Because, <laughs> as I've said many times during this gig, they uh, they didn't hire an interviewer. They hired a colorist to interview people. And so I'm going to ask the questions that I care about. And uh, so I got the answers that way. So, um, so sorry about that. But I'm not that sorry. Um <laughs> But my thanks to Brian McMahon for taking the time, you know, to sit here and babble about this stuff because I, this is a thrill for me. I, re- I really enjoyed this. I love it too. Uh, you know, it's just two two of us that do the same thing, just rehashing old old stuff. Really, it's fun. <laughs> Thank Memory you very lane. much. Well, geez, Skip, you're on fire. Ilya Baskin and Brian McMahon on just one episode of a bonus show that's just uh, ancillary to our main show. Oh, but we got so much more. I mean, how you crazy. Know, you know we're going to be getting other interviews. And I, and I can say today... You know, I can. You know, we can all make promises. Hey, we have plans to talk to this person. We have plans to talk to that person. But you're li- you're listening to the eleven twenty two sixty three podcast, and we're getting some very cool people. And I can confirm today, 
because I recorded it today. If you have listened to the trailer, if you've seen the trailer for 112263, the Hulu miniseries, you heard a really beautiful, haunting song, this crooning ballad, and it probably got stuck in your head, and maybe you sought it out and, could, and found out that it's pretty hard to find. That song was recorded by Bobby Vinton. And we interviewed Bobby Vinton. So uh, I spoke to him this morning, and he was, <laughs> uh, he was, I had no idea what to expect in regards to talking to that guy. There's a whole story about that song and uh, its use and um, how it's you know, gaining popularity online. If you liked that song that was in the trailer, you have to listen to Bobby uh, Vinton interview that's coming up. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that. Yeah, and we are going to be premiering that on our sixth episode, uh, episode 0.6. So it's our last show in advance of the Hulu series 11.22.63. So all of you listening still on the Quantum Leap podcast, if you want to hear that, come on over to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to your sister podcast 11.22.63. Uh, it's just one of the many Baron Space shows. As you heard at the top of the show, we have Juan from Thinking Outside the Long Box. We're going to be appearing on his show. And uh, you're already listening to the Quantum Leap podcast. And Skip, if they want to, once they listen to our show, contact us or our regular listeners who are listening right now, where can they get us? If you'd like to know more about our show, of course, go to baronspace.com slash 112263. Or email us. Please send us MP3s so we can hear your voice and put you on the air. 112263podcast at gmail.com. Obviously, you can find us on Facebook, the most popular place. Facebook.com slash 112263podcast. You can find us on Twitter at 112263podcast. Instagram.com slash 112263podcast. Or call us on the phone and leave us a voicemail. We'll put you on the air as well. 707-847-6682. And we want to hear from both the 112263 fans that have been listening to us for a while, but also you Quantum Leap fans. We want to get your opinions on the Lee Harvey Oswald episode. I know I have very definite opinions about why I didn't like it. If anyone out there concurs, I'd love to hear why. If you think I'm completely off base like Skipper, I'd love to hear why. And uh, that's what we do here. If you haven't noticed, our dynamic is um, if I like something, for some reason, he just doesn't like it or vice versa. Hey, man, it's not on purpose. And it, <laughs> but it seems to be working for us. So we're just going to keep rolling with that. Uh, but it's always good. It's always collegial. And it always brings up a good conversation. And uh, if we can, uh, once again, just thank Albie, the Quantum Leap podcast host and the mastermind behind Baron Space Productions for sort of bringing us together and giving us the opportunity to do this show. Again, you can see all of the great Baron Space programming at baronspace.com. So please go over there. And uh, also thanks to Juan, our co-executive producer, and the poor guy who's got to edit all of this gobbledygook into compelling audio. So go Juan. Uh, one final plea or uh, message out to you, out to you, the listener. Um, in regards to these bonus episodes, uh, personally, I, I'm looking forward to them because they really change things up. You guys know what to expect when it comes to the book. You read the book. You guys know what to come to. You know, you're going to watch the episodes probably right along with us in regards to the miniseries. But when it comes to the, uh, the extra episodes, 
I know Chris is discovering a whole lot of other, you know, uh, versions of this story, whether it be books or television shows, and so am I. Um, most of this stuff I haven't seen before or read before, and we get to talk about something similar to what we've all, obviously, we're all here for this kind of story. Well, there are other ones out there, and there are actually some really good ones. So it's it's interesting. We hope to, uh, you know, discover new ones along, you know, right along with you, and uh, come along with the fun. Yeah, and um, if you are coming along for the fun, but you happen to run out of stories. There are other types of stories you could <laughs> read as well. Um, I think my friend Skip has this website that oh, has that has uh, a certain graphic novel available. <laughs> Skip, can you tell us about that? I can tell you about that. It's called Bizarre New World, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. Bizarre New World tells the story of what would happen if a regular, ordinary schlub like myself could actually fly in the real world. No aliens, no supervillains, nothing like that. It's It's a grounded approach, no pun intended. What would happen in the real world? And on my website, the uh, graphic novel is complete, totally done, beginning, middle, and end. You don't have to read it like a comic book that's going to run for 300 issues. It's a self-contained story. And uh, there's some free preview material online. You can try it out. You don't have to guess if the book is – you don't have to take my word for it. Go try it out and see if you like it. And then there are other uh, short stories that also explore the concept of a flying world from different points of view, different countries, different writers, different artists. Um, we really uh, we really pulled out all the stops to explore the idea of a flying human world. And uh, But when you're done with that, there's some other place you need to go. Chris, where else do they need to go? Well, they can come to my website. It is deflipside.com. That's D-E-F-L-I-P-S-I-D-E.com. And there you will find a plethora of things. You can find my award-winning radio show, Deflipside. Uh, I do radio segments that deal with science and fiction and science fiction and anything genre or science-related that strikes my fancy. You can also find my segments which appear on the Quantum Leap podcast, and that includes my main segments that go with the main show and also my trivia segments about Quantum Leap radio sightings. So if you are fans of the Quantum Leap podcast, you already know about that, but for you 112263 listeners, there's a plethora of Quantum Leap material on theflipside.com, so come and check that out. And you can also find my original time travel novella called The Seeker. It's about a time traveler and an invisible man who team up to defeat a genie. So you can check that out as well. Again, that's deflipside.com, D-E-F-L-I-P-S-I-D-E. There's a lot there to keep you occupied. I hope you go. I hope you enjoy. Well, you know, I have to say it's now game time, man. <laughs> so yeah. it's getting real exciting. You know, we're, we're now heading into... Uh, and we're actually going to get to watch the show. We've been talking about this for so long. We now actually get to see it. So uh, I'm I'm getting more and more excited by the day. So I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to doing it with you, Chris. And uh, thanks for the audience. Uh, you know, if you've stuck around this long, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys. And I just want to leave you with some advice. Um, if you do find a psycho loner assassin taking over your personality, <laughs> just remember the four fundamental forces of quantum physics that should save you. And also, hands off Cuba. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hands off Cuba. You're right. You're right. You're right. It's catchy. That's right. So, all right, guys. Well, it's been a blast, Skip. Until next time. Uh, my name is Skipper Martin. And I'm Christopher DeFilippis. See you later, guys. Take care.
Thank you for joining us for 112263, an event podcast. Your hosts are Skipper Martin and Christopher D. Philippus. The show is edited by Juan, and Juan is the co-executive producer. The executive producer is Albert Burge. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and may not represent or reflect the views of 112263, an event podcast. Baron Space Productions, its partners or affiliates. 112263, its universe and all its contents is property of Stephen King, Bad Robot Productions, and Hulu, and in no way are connected to this podcast or Baron Space Productions. No copyright infringement is intended. 112263, an event podcast, is a Baron Space production. Copyright 2016. All rights reserved. <laughs>